Well, tonight we're taking a look at Beach Blast 1995, an event so hot they had to put it on the beach. Oh, um, it's Bash of the Beach 95. Oh, it is Beach Bash of the Beach 95. Well, <laughs> found my show intro. There you okay. go. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man who really enjoys having a warm cup of Ovaltine and a cookie, Alec Pridgen. I'm apparently 75 years old, according <laughs> to that intro. So I feel like sometimes in the morning, but that's just, you know, that's just getting old in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're slowly getting there, you know. Uh, time is creeping along. That's true, it's true. Otherwise, I'm doing doing quite well. Good, good. What's your favorite kind of cookie? Um, I like dark chocolate, so you know those dark chocolate ones are really good. Mmm. Mm. Under they're just the, or all the, like, the really dark, oh, cookies dark. Ooh, yeah, yeah, those are tasty. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Tonight, we're taking a look at Bash at the Beach 1995, an event so hot they had to put it on the beach. So is there like some kind of temperature chart where if things reach a particular temperature, you have to move to a beach? Yeah, when what if it gets too hot for this show? Where to go? Like a yeah. volcano? Well, and I kind of feel like it's more likely that if things reach a particular temperature, you have to move it to like a specially constructed facility made out of heat shielded material. But that's just me. I mean, just turn the fans on, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really easier to move your show to a beach than to just turn on the AC. I mean, I, I guess it. I guess it costs less. You know, in terms of energy, right? You know, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> WCW, the Green Conscious Company. Mm-hmm. Yes. Bash of the Beach 1995 was held on July 16, 1995, at the beach in Huntington Beach, California, in front of 9,000 fans. Obviously, this being a literal beach, we can't do a comparison to the arena capacity like we sometimes do. Right. Yeah. Bash of the Beach 1995 earned 210,000 pay-per-view buys, which is on the high end for 1995. There's only two shows that earn more, those being Super Brawl 5 and Uncensored 1995, at 220,000 each. It's also only 20,000 less than last year. I'm not sure if it was the beach theme or some lingering good feelings from how important last year's show was, but it looks like we're maintaining some pretty good numbers so far. I don't know if that's like your goal, like, well, it didn't do quite as well as Uncensored, but that's okay. I mean, to be, to be fair, no one knew what Uncensored 95 was going to be like going in because it was the first show of the series. Oh, that so is- it might have gotten artificially inflated numbers because they were like, oh, new show. That's exciting. Yeah. Because they didn't realize it was going to be a steaming pile of crap. <laughs> yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. Prior to the pay-per-view, three matches were filmed for WCW's main event TV show. Sergeant Craig Pittman beat Chris Canyon, who I didn't even realize was in WCW at this point. Road Warrior Hawk beat Mark Starr, who at one point was Canyon's partner in a team called Men at Work, where they played construction workers. I think that's a bit later in 95, but uh, I could be wrong. I think so. I will say, when I hear Men at Work, well, I either think of the band, or I think of the film with Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez, which, of course, they're not construction workers. They take a trash, so it's a little different. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> 
Finally, Dirty Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck with Colonel Robert Parker beat Marcus Bagwell and Alex Wright. Oh no, we missed a Bunkhouse Buck match. I am saddened. We've we've seen one good one. <laughs> yeah, this ratio is not great still. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, actually, last last year's was fair as well. I, I have to say that that wasn't bad. No, I mean I, I got way more out of uh, Terry Funk in that match. Than yes, Dustin. Yes, yes. But yeah, he didn't ruin things. It's fair. The sun is shining. The waves are crashing. Let's go to the beach. Waves are curling. Sharks will be swirling as Slim Jim presents WCW's Bash at the Beach. Snap into a Slim Jim. Snap into the biggest thing ever to hit the beach. WCW's Bash at the Beach. Oh, yeah. Brought to you by Slim Jim. Snap into it. I'll be snapping into some payback from the Nature Boy. Oh, yeah. The big steel cage will be rumbling like a tidal wave when WCW world champion Hulk Hogan returns to the shores of the Pacific to fend off the miraculous monster Big Van Vader. Let's rumble and tumble at the WCW Bash at the Beach. Sponsored by Slim Jim. Snap into it. I like the like the little theme they've got for it. I think they, I think they used that for the, the intro video package last year, the same song. I think so, yeah. This up over familiar, yeah. Yeah. Our intro video package serves part as a promo for the show and part as a Slim Jim's ad. It's about 60-40 as far as, as far as that goes. Yeah, yeah. Randy Savage does a rather tortured segue from snapping into Slim Jim's to snapping into Payback. It's also a little bit weird he words it as snapping into Payback from Ric Flair. Yeah. Because that, that would mean that Flair was paying him back. I mean, why not just say snapping into Ric Flair? Yeah, see that would that would make sense. Yeah. Maybe he thought that would sound like cannibalism, given what snapping into means with a slim jim. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> if if anyone thinks logically, it's Randy Savage. <laughs> Good try, anyway, Randy. Yeah, fair enough. I like the cage logo that they use for Hogan Invader, but they have all of the other graphics, including the cage match text, appear underneath that, and actually yeah. underneath the wrestler pictures as well, which makes things really hard to read. Yeah, it, it it should be the wrestlers, then the cage, and then the graphics. Yeah, yeah, and the cage match over everything else. Right. You obviously want them behind the cage match graphic to simply, hey, they're locked on the cage, but yeah, yeah. you also don't want to block the text. Yeah. We close with the great Flexing Wave logo, which I still love, accompanied this time by the incredibly hyperactive Slim Jims logo that cycles through at least 15 logo iterations in a rapid loop. Why does Slim Jims even need logo variations? Yeah, I'm not sure on that one. <laughs> I don't think they planned this, but they've gotten a really good value for their uh, sponsorship deal, whatever money they paid Randy Savage. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when they upload shows and when they decide what to cut, we're here and there, like, especially like Nitro's, where there's commercials originally on it. They have to, I mean, use some sort of, you know, primitive AI or some sort of program to go, here's where you cut, here's where you cut. So it, they don't run the ads again, basically. Yeah. However, the Slim Jim ads seem to break the metric a bit, because they show up. I think those legit were aired by WCW. Mm. I think those like are legit considered part of Nitro. It might be. My, my theory is just that because Randy Savage shows up, the program goes, oh, that's part of the show, and it keeps them in. But either way, I mean, good. Yeah, they got, yeah good value for money, definitely. They got their, got their money's worth, yeah. Even now, in fact, Slim Jim uses Randy Savage in some of their marketing. 
their website actually links to a playlist with a bunch of old Randy Savage Slim Jim ads. Some in extremely low resolution, as apparently rather than uploading their own copies, they just used ones that other folks had loaded onto YouTube, most notably someone with the charming username of Man Barbecue. <laughs> oh. You would think the company would still have the video files to load themselves? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it's a thing where they were on master tapes and never wanted to keep them? Yeah. I don't know. Still fun to watch, though. Yeah, I will say, I see, um... Usually in big lots, I'll see them. They have packaging that has them on it as well. Yes, they have like a Savage stick specifically. That's it. Yeah, it's like, like Savage, it's like Savage size or something. It's like, like that. three times the size of a normal Slim Jim, which is already pretty big. Yes, that that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, the the best Slim Jims ads with Randy Savage, I think, are either the one where he's in the library and basically wrecks the building with Slim Jim snaps, mm-hmm. or the Romeo and Juliet play one. He repeatedly tries to murder the director with unlikely stage accidents fueled by Slim Jims. I, you know, I don't remember that one, but I definitely have to watch it again. It's utterly hilarious. <laughs> the one that sticks in my mind and the one that I've seen on Tuck to Nitros is the one where he's just, again, like, the insane asylum. Yes. Wrapped up. That one gets around a lot, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Slim Jims interlude over. Let's move on. <laughs> yes. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to Huntington Beach for Slim Jim's Bash at the Beach, because WCW needs money. And yes, this year the show does literally take place on the beach, not an arena decorated like a beach. The ring is a bit elevated, much like at Hog slash Road Wild. It's an interesting arrangement and definitely gives a unique atmosphere, though aside from a few bits of elevated seating, the crowd largely looks like they have to just stand around on the sand around the ring for several hours. <laughs> Probably got a little tiresome. Yeah, I'm wondering if... You know, spoiler alert, they didn't do this setup ever again, as far as I recall, with Bash of the Beach. I'm wondering if they'd done it multiple times, if they would have learned the same way they learned with the Road and Hogwild series. Mm-hmm. I like how by the last show, as terrible as that last show was, they had the setup perfectly right. Yes. They, you know, they had they had nice little bleachers out there, and they had space for the bike. So they had the bike still there, and people could also sit, and they could see. Yeah, yeah, it, was, it became much more of a formal set. Right. Uh, in 98 and 99's version of that show, yeah. It, it would have been interesting to see them try this uh, idea again. I would kind of like it if they moved it around a bit, like if they went to places like, to it by lakes and stuff, that'd be fun. <laughs> just go by the Great Lakes, yeah. Or just yeah, like, go, to, go to different beaches around the country, and yeah, that, that'd be fun, Ooh, yeah. They could have gone Niagara Falls. <laughs> oh, God, they'd be so tempted to do a really horrible match concept, you know they would. I, I know, yeah. <laughs> It is funny as well. In the background, you can often see folks having fun in the ocean. So to me, what this kind of feels most like is a Street Fighter stage. Yes, yeah. You know, you, you always are fighting in the foreground, and in the background, people are just going about their daily lives or having fun at whatever location you're in and stuff. It's it's always interesting. Yeah, it's funny. As, as the show goes on, when they cut to room crowd shots, obviously most people there are, you know, they're dressed for the beach. So, you know, they're either wearing a bikini or, you know, guys that are wearing, you know, trunks and now wearing a shirt and whatnot. So you'll see occasionally, like I remember when I was just rewatching the main, I think it's the main event, there's a guy in like a polo shirt out there and he's, he is sweating. Because mm-hmm. he's been out there for two and a half hours on the beach in the sun, all oh, the afternoon, like, it's like, oh, why didn't I dress for the beach? <laughs> <laughs> you see regretting his decisions in real time. Tony intros his co-host, Bobby the Brain Heenan. They are almost going with your suggestion from last year, Al. They're not quite in beach wear again but they are dressed more casually in WCW polo shirts instead of suits. So at least it's a, a slight nod towards this is a more casual atmosphere. No, absolutely, yeah. 
And again, I can't imagine them dressed to the nines out in that weather. Oh, God, no, yeah. That is one thing you notice, though, is that they are under a little tent. Yes. That was actually a smart move, I think, by WCW. They got them some shade, because they exactly, like, yeah. you're going to be out here forever, guys. <laughs> yeah, because they, they had to do prep, so I'm sure they were out longer than anyone else was, mm-hmm. practically, yeah. Tony and Heenan build up the Hogan vs. Vader cage match main event, and Heenan predicts that Hogan's reign as champ and his career will end here. Tony notes that we're going to have four title matches tonight, and up first is Sting vs. Meng for Sting's United States title. Tony then throws to an enormously over-the-top video package building up Meng. Oh, yes. time of his existence, he was taught to intimidate, to eliminate, to conquer and destroy. A one-man shield of steel is Ming. Brought up to protect the emperors of the Far East, his soul disperses fear to all persons willing to step into his protected domain. Trained in nine forms of martial arts, Ming is a master of disaster. Inside his mind, the focus is there. Discipline, tenacity, diligence. The fight will continue until the breathing stops. There's a murderer, apparently. Yes. Victims are many. Is a serial killer. Yes. Is widespread. Protect my master with all means necessary. I have been put here to finish the competition, to complete the contest, to continue to serve. This is Ming. I swear this thing sounds like they're building him up as the next world title challenger. Yeah. Not putting him up for U.S. title in the first match on the show. Mm-hmm. Also, why does the narrator start speaking like he himself is Meng about three-quarters of the way through? It's very strange, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the exact timeline, but we're less than a year out from Glacier. One of those, like, yes. testing this formatting. There's a number of things in the show that feel kind of like trial runs for things that are going to happen later. Yeah. Um. The the ending of the show in particular, where they cut away, act like they're wrapping up, and then cut back as oh my gosh, something else is happening, feels like such a trial run for like NWO era stuff. And this is this is well before they're starting that, but that that sort of thing would happen a lot with the NWO era. That is like oh we're wrapping up, we're totally done with the show, and then something new will. What's this? What's this in the back now? Yeah. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. And and genuinely, I've I've. Long said that the Dungeon of Doom angle in general actually kind of feels like a trial run for the NWO. Oh, yeah. A, just a cartoony way of doing the same basic concept. Yeah, in many ways, the Dungeon of Doom is the, I'd say, the, the Super Friends. Yes. To the NWO's modern day uh, DC movie franchises. Yes. With the yes. grim, dark, and seriousness. Yeah. <laughs> His soul disperses fear is kind of a great line. Like, very cartoony, yeah. supervillain, but great line. <laughs> It is, yeah. I'll be honest, I, I kind of want to make that announcer guy MVP, just off of that. <laughs> it's right up there with, like, Buffer last year getting saddled with the Buzz Aldrin line, but yeah. making it through it. <laughs> yes. Honestly, that, that delivery is pretty impressive. Yeah. We cut right from that video package to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is with United States champ Sting. 
And speaking of Ming, the man that is going to be challenging my guest at this time, U.S. Heavyweight Champ Sting for this coveted title, is none other than Colonel Parker's pride and joy. He's made a lot out of this guy. You know how tough he's been in the past. Well, you know something, Mean Gene. I know how tough he's been in the past, but you know something? This is the stinger here on his home turf. Yeah, he's a bad, bad dude. He can wipe anybody out. I mean, he's got kicks. He's got swats. He's got karate chops. He knows seven different forms of martial arts, but the stinger knows seven different forms of crazy. And more important, right here on my home turf, with the ocean, the palm trees, and that's right, waves and waves of little stingers, big stingers, medium-sized stingers, every color in the whole wide world. I got good buddies like Mark Johnson and Jamie Pugh by my side, and you know something? I got my mom and dad sitting ringside, and the stinger is not going to be embarrassed. Not in front of mom and dad, not in my home turf, not in California, Huntington Beach, with the U.S. title up for grabs. But I'll tell you what, I've never seen you quite so pumped up, Sting, and it's yes! really that, that hometown environment. That's right, I said it, didn't I? Hometown, right here, Huntington Beach. I got the beach, I got the sun, I got my muscles going just right. Yeah, that's right, a little bit of Popeye. How about one, hey, ah, how about one for the crowd? Let's hear it. Woo! That's all yes! I wanted to hear. Sting, you guys have again too, Miji. I hope so, because we just heard it from thousands out there. Right now, let's get you back to action here at Bash at the Beach. So apparently, Meng forgot two different forms of martial arts between the video package and Sting's promo, or maybe he learned them recently and Sting's just not aware of it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As I like that he knows seven forms of crazy. Yes. Like, does that mean he knows different mental disorders? Because, I mean, I know a lot of them, too. I don't have them, but I know what they are. I'm not bragging about it. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe Or maybe crazy is actually uh, like, it's crazy like a fox. You have to actually study it. It's a technique. Mm, okay. You know? Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, this this was a fun, if some off-kilter sting promo. Yeah. He builds up how being so close to home has him supercharged, and how he's even got his mom and dad watching from ringside, apparently. Yeah. I absolutely love the bit where Gene says Sting is in his hometown, and Sting appears to double-check that he did, in fact, say that bit. It's like, yes. I, said, I said that, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know about you. I've definitely been in that situation frequently on this show, in fact, when I'm just saying stuff, and honestly, I'm not quite sure if I've mentioned all my plan points yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I sympathize, Sting. I get lied to a, a little Popeye. That's a good yes. <laughs> and Gene requesting a Stinger call. Is just, that's, that's a lot of good energy in this promo. Mm-hmm. My one critique for Sting at this point is why I like his outfit, his orange um, thing. I kind of wished when he comes U.S. champion, he'd really commit to the thing and like wear red, white, and blue. I get that, yeah. I do do like the orange and blue for this show specifically because that looks very beach wear. Like something about that color scheme feels like a beach color scheme. Right. I think for me, it's because I know know he has a jacket that goes with it. Yes. He wore a few years back. Yes. He should eternally wear that outfit when he's U.S. champion. Well, you should make a thing about how, you know, like I just bought, say, let's say 10 new uh, things of ring gears to wear while champion to show how determined he is to keep the championship. Yes. Because obviously I can't wear these if I'm not U.S. champion, so <laughs> I get champion for months. He loses the title and you have this this sad video package of him hanging all the gear back in the closet and locking the door yeah. as, as sad piano music plays. Yes. Sad patriotic piano music. like. Oh, yeah, yeah. A really sad version of, I don't know, uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
<laughs> yeah, that'd be good, yeah. <laughs> oh, look, Al. They have my favorite thing from the Hog slash Road Wild series on this one, the shaky helicopter shot. <laughs> oh, good. It's not the best thing for this show, either. It does show a big crowd around the ring, which is cool, but it also shows that not all that far from the ring. Still, there's a lot of folks just having a nice normal day at the beach and not really giving a crap about the WCW show going on. Right. Because the thing with the Road Wild shows is they like set a designated area mm-hmm. like on one side of the road. If you are going, you're near there, you're there for the show. Yeah. Or at least you're wandering over curiously to see it. You don't wander by accident. Yeah, this one, they've just kind of plopped a ring somewhere on the beach. I, I I really do wonder like what folks staying at the hotels for the weekend thought if if you didn't know that the WCW show was gonna be there when you when you booked your hotel room we're like, Oh great, we'll have wonderful views of the beach and you look out your window like, What the heck is going on? Yeah. Why is there a wrestling ring? Right. <laughs> Our first match is Meng with Colonel Robert Parker versus Sting for Sting's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So the previous U.S. champ was Vader. But of course, they're building Vader up to fight for Hogan's title, so you don't want to have him lose anybody. So they had him attack Nick Bockwinkle, amongst all the other many people who attacked, so he was stripped of the title. And of course, when there's no title holder or no champion, what do you do? Tournament. Yes, you do a Tournament. Oh my gosh, especially with this title that happens all the time. Ultimately, it came down to a finals match between Sting and Ming, and of course you can guess who won, based on the previous promo with Torvi Discovered. Heels don't like losing, especially when they have heel managers, so we have a rematch. Uh, We transition to the match card for the US title match by means of some very fun wave graphics. WCW is keeping its graphics game up from last year, which is nice. Mm Mm-hmm. The ring this year has ring posts covered in the Slim Jim colors and logo because WCW needs money. Yes. Meng gets some very ominous music for his intro. It's not the usual, like, uh, wistful flute theme that they give him later. Yes, true. Much yeah. more ominous. Yes, yeah, nice. He comes out in a very bright, multicolored kimono. Heenan notes that Parker is wearing a hat gifted to him by race car driver Richard Petty, and somehow that's going to give him good luck, so he predicts a Meng win. Why not? Michael Buffer, who must be absolutely sweltering in that white tux, yes. gives the ring intros. It's rare to see him early in the show like this. It is very odd, yes. He notes that Meng was discovered by the WCW while working as a bodyguard, and calls Sting the Star of Thunder in Paradise. I know he was in an episode or two, but did Buffer mix up his note cards with those for the Hogan match there? Yeah, it's just like this weird thing where well, you're a star, and you're on a show, so you must be the star of the show, I guess. Yeah, normally that's what they use the word guest star for. Right, yeah. The guest part does, does add that qualifier in there. Yeah. It's just it's funny to hear that as, like, the defining thing in, in Sting's career in Buffer's notes, apparently. Yes. Sting lands several strikes, but Meng just roars at him and beats him up, intermixed with choking and nerve holds, and earns two with a nice leg drop. Tony points out the camera crew from Baywatch is also filming today, as this show will be featured in a Baywatch episode. Sting dodges a second rope splash and fights to put on the Scorpion Deathlock, but just as he does, Parker climbs up on the apron, so Sting immediately lets go to go after him, earning a kick from Meng. Duh, Sting. (laughs) Yeah, right? Meng earns two counts with a brain buster and a triple backbreaker. 
Tony claims this is the largest crowd ever to see a WCW event in the United States, claiming that there's hundreds of thousands of people. Are we are we counting everyone anywhere on the beach? I I, I guess yeah, apparently. Because the the figure I found was nine thousand. Right. Yeah. They've definitely had more than nine thousand people in in some of their arena shows. <laughs> yes, of course. Heenan mentions that Okerlund claimed it was a capacity crowd and asks, what's the capacity of a beach? Tony admits that's a good point. Yes. Meng works around an abdominal stretch. Sting counters a whip with a sunset flip, but Meng ends up in the ropes, so no count. Meng tries one of his own, but Sting drops right on Meng's nose. Yeah. Ow. He's, yeah, he's trying to do that jumping, basically, for lack of a word, uh, butt drop. It's weird, like, I don't know what goes wrong there. Because he jumps up, I mean, it really gets Sting, and he has, like, a 30-foot vertical leap at this point. Yes. So it's possible he's perfectly aimed and then falls farther than he thinks he's going to. Like, he, he's, like, he's ready to land, and he, he changed position. He seems to, like, fall back instead of landing straight, and so I think maybe he, yeah, it might be, like you said, he threw himself too high to do it accurately. It's a little hard to aim from orbit. <laughs> right, right, yeah. He basically ends up doing that jumping senton that yes. you like Samoa Joe do, where you run. Except they do it across the chest, because that's the goal. Whereas he just, yeah, just falls on Ming's face. Yes. Yeah, even Meng looks a little bit stunned by yeah. that one. Which, it takes a lot to shake Meng, so... Yeah. Meng tries a variant Boston Crab with both legs under the same arm, and Sting gets out somehow off-camera, because WSW's camera crew is on point today. Yeah. Sting fires up and earns two counts with a Thez Press and a rare Frankensteiner. Frankenstinger? Yeah, sure, I'll take that. Another two with a somewhat sloppy crossbody hits a little bit too high. Mm-hmm. Stinger splash, but Meng boots him in the face in midair for two. I have no idea how he did that safely. That looked like it hurt. The only move I've seen that's worse is there's a couple of times with X-Pac matches... Mm-hmm. They'll run to his Bronco Buster, and I think Jeff mm-hmm. Jarrett's done it. They'll put their foot out that exact same way. Yes. And then just, well, let's see, it doesn't hit his face if you don't yes. Bronco Buster it. Yes. <laughs> I, I can't imagine how you do that without it actually hurting a lot. Yeah. Meng, second rope splash for two. We get a Freudian slip as Heenan notes that Meng was jobbed on this one. <clears throat> was he robbed? Just as Sting ducks a kick and smoothly takes Ring down for the three count in the win. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. As Sting celebrates tiredly, Meng clubs him from behind and chokes him with a foot, then boots him out of the ring. Anderson goes to check on him, and Road Warrior Hawk comes down in full regalia to protect Sting. Scorpio Hawk's reunion! <laughs> yes! John will be so happy. Mm-hmm. We get a replay of the kick during the Stinger splash and the ending, and Heenan claims that Sting was holding the tights, though he clearly is not. Yeah, he is not. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? So, this one of the matches I feel it's really strong on story. There's a lot of nice bits as far as that goes. There's a part where Sting is sort of fighting for control and Ming pushes him away, and he shows like legitimate concern slash fear in his face. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really look like, wow, can I really take this guy down? Yeah, Sting does some amazing facial storytelling in this match, yeah. So he did a lot of good work that way. Ming, for his part, is just generally big and menacing. It's interesting with him because there's little bits that sort of shine through where, you know, he's playing this big savage guy, he's uncontrollable, you know, 
murder as the end. That video pack it talked about. Yes, serial killer, basically. Yes. But then he'll randomly just jump into a really nice leg drop you can do. Mm-hmm. Just the, you know, the thing you learn like in wrestling training, rather than like clubbing and punching and you know, throwing people around. Well, I mean, to be fair, they've they built him up as knowing nine different kinds of martial arts, so clearly one of the kinds of martial arts is leg drop. Uh, which one is that again? That's that's uh, that's leg drop foo, obviously. Oh, my mistake. I, I have problems. See, I, I spent all my time in high school learning the crazy. I didn't learn the martial arts. So. Yeah, exactly. See, that was the flaw in your strategy. It's one or the other. You can't learn both. <laughs> I do imagine it's maybe a little too long for the content, because for me, it gets, it gets real sort of punch-kick-punch punch a lot. I think in the middle, maybe. The thing is, there's parts that just don't quite seem to go right. Like, as you mentioned, the sting falling onto Ming's face. That crossbody wasn't super great. I'm still not sure if that brain buster he was doing was him actually doing a brain buster or was just the timing a little off. Because he's, yeah. what he's doing is he's suplexing him from the ring apron into the ring. Yes. The timing of when you, as the suplexer, go down all the way for the suplex E, for lack of a better word. Is important then. Mm-hmm. He comes down really fast at the end, rather than like a, a normal like flat back fall you would do. Like you sort of essentially float down, but try and make it look like you're going really quickly. So I, I don't know if that's actually a botch or not. It could be just him doing a brain buster, but it catches the announcers off guard. Like, whoa, whoa what is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely is a is a surprising moment in the match. I feel like it was probably intentional, but uh, yeah, I can't say for sure. It's it's not a move like I associate being doing. That's why. Yeah, it yeah. seems that ordinary. And for me, the ending, I know, it's fairly well done, but I don't know why it has to be a sort of fluke, pull Ming down finish and not... I get don't want to, you know, have him tap out, or I guess verbose in it, we're not doing tap outs yet. But I don't know if staying sort of locking into the victory by getting a hold on him is the best way to book your champion. I kind of read it more as, honestly, a very skilled takedown, though. Mm. That, like, it's not a, it's not a luck roll-up, it's he dodges the move, gets him exactly right. It's it's almost it's a martial artsy takedown, actually. It's like Sting using Meng's style against him. Maybe, yeah. Like I'm not I'm not yeah, I'm not really like bothered by it, it's just not one I would have booked. Okay. What is it, well, the other thing I would say is that this is the second time they've had a big match. Mm-hmm. First one was during champion. Like this kind of finish makes absolutely makes sense for the first match. Gotcha. You want something bigger for the second yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, more definitive. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll accept that. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable match, but not really the pace that I expect for an opener. Mm-hmm. There were some very nice spots mixed in, particularly that kick on the splash and the Frankenstinger, but the pacing was just too slow, like you were saying. Yeah. Part of that, I think, is just the style that Meng is going for here. He's playing the big hulking destroyer. The crowd was hot for Sting for most of the match, as he slowly got beaten down but kept fighting back, but between somewhat repetitive spots, a few botches and lots of holds that just kind of unceremoniously just stop. I found this a bit underwhelming. Yeah. Hypothetically, what would you switch to opening match? That's where I was struggling myself. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's the hard thing on this show is, I, I think in terms of speed, at least, maybe the tag match, but that one for various other reasons I wouldn't put in opening spot. Yeah. Like, that's the one that has the, the speed of action that you want for an opening, opening yeah. match anyway. I definitely wouldn't would make the, the TV title match first. For a number oh, of reasons. Yes. No, people would leave. <laughs> right. The third match, which we'll obviously get to, maybe is a stronger one, because facing that gets a really good crowd response, and he's... Oh, the D- Duggan, yeah. The Duggan one, yeah. Also, it's not too long. Mm-hmm. And it's not a great quality match, as we'll discuss, but... I but you at least get a crowd reaction because of Duggan, yeah. Yeah. 
you almost wonder if um, Bischoff's in the back going, man, if only I had some guys that worked really fast, like small guys that could jump around. And uh-huh. That would really start a show strongly. Yeah. The ending couple minutes of this, though, I thought were really good. I agree. Yeah. We got a quicker pace, some big stunts, and a nice surprise finish. I, I rather liked that one, honestly. If the whole match had that kind of energy, I think it would have been great. I do feel like these two have a great match in them. Yeah. This one just wasn't it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, too, wonder if some of the stuff that goes slightly off is maybe due to not being used to wrestling in this environment as well. Mm-hmm. The sunlight could get in your eyes. You're not quite able to see well. You're hot. You're sweaty. You know, it's, right. it's not the same environment. Certainly, there, there's a few more botches on this show than normal anyway, and I would... I would say it might be the whole, like, outdoors at the beach thing. Right. I do have to say, it's it's too bad they, they never actually show us a picture of uh, Sting's parents in the crowd, though. Yes, I was thinking that, too. I was trying to yeah. spot them. I would assume that it would be, like, an older couple wearing face paint, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So that bit at the end with Sting and the Road Warrior Hawk, as the Scorpio Hawks reunited, would lead to a match at the next official show, which is... Clash of the Champions, their TV specials, mm-hmm. because there's a gap, as we'll cover, between this and the next proper pay-per-view. So you'd have the Scorpio Hawks team up against Ming and Kurosawa, not the director, because at that point he's dead. <laughs> it's a different Japanese wrestler who was brought in under Colonel Parker's uh, stable. Gotcha. It is funny, actually, thinking about it, going these shows year to year, we go from Colonel Parker's stud stable, the idea, anyways, they're all sort of good old boys. To he's managing Ming and he's managing Kurosawa, as we'll discuss. He's just dropped uh, setting Steve Austin. Yes, he's not in the company, so it's it's just a weird transition from here's my stud table guys to here's these big scary guys that are definitely foreign. Yeah, <laughs> and scary. He's still calling it the stud table at this point, That's, or at least other people. I, yeah, he. I believe he is. Yeah. Uh, as far as the two men in the match, they have a big match at Fall Brawl, which I'll discuss more later when more people get involved. Okay. Uh, as far as the U.S. title itself, the next show, Fall Brawl, would open with a match determining no one can the belt since Sting is busy on something else. We cut to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is with Jimmy Hart and Renegade. Joy. We talked about Renegade briefly back on Slambury 1995. He is WSW's blatant, blatant ripoff of the WWF's Ultimate Warrior just with our themed face paint instead of Warrior's normal style, which is more of a, I don't know, descending bat shape or a upside-down W with a pointy end. Yeah, it's, there's definitely a, a bat symbol thing going on. Yeah. Warrior's face paint design. Yeah. Warrior was an energetic performer who might not have had a ton of actual wrestling variety, but made up for it with charisma and a big personality. Renegade might not have had a ton of actual wrestling variety, but he made up for it by having R's on his shoulders in addition to his face. Yes. <laughs> I don't necessarily terribly mind the R in the face, but just like randomly paying the R on his arm looks so dumb. It looks weird, right? Yeah. They were just trying to like think, what, what arm decorations can we do that are not quite warrior so we don't get totally sued? Like, even if he would lose the case, you know Warrior would have sued him if they had him wearing tassels. Yes. He would be like, I owe tassels! Ah. I'm pretty sure he would win the case, too, actually. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Jimmy, it's very tough for me to concentrate on all of the action we're seeing. I mean, all of the action we are seeing here. 
including your title defense for World Television Champ, the Renegade, who's going to be squaring off against the Slim Jim's Challenge winner, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. You know, Mean Gene, when you pick up any wrestling magazine in the country, they're all talking about the Renegade, baby, and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff right here in Southern California in the warm California sun when he gets through with you. That's all you're going to be talking about, too. Renegade World Television Champ, big task ahead of you. Jimmy Hart has programmed me to T-O-S terminate on Zod! You got this guy tuned up, I'll tell you. Mean Gene, he is ready, baby. Bash at the beach. All right, uh, I'll tell you, I think some of this Southern California weather making these guys a little kooky. Bobby Heenan, you don't know a standing room only crowd when you see one, my friend. Slim Jim's Bash at the Beach. Right now, let's get you back to more action up in the ring. <laughs> Gene getting back at Heenan for that capacity joke at his expense earlier there. Oh, gotcha. This segment, well, they did their best. <laughs> yeah. They're stuck with an absolute lemon of an angle here, and they're trying to make it what they can. Mm. Jimmy and Gene have to pretend that the wrestling world is excited about a blatant subpar Ultimate Warrior ripoff, and poor Renegade has to spend the entire promo acting like a blatant subpar Ultimate Warrior ripoff. I do not envy the man. Yes, no. That said, Warrior was known for bizarre, lengthy, completely nonsensical promos about spaceships, rocket fuel, spirits of the Warriors, and in one memorable instance, claiming he was going to kill the pilots of Hogan's airplane and drive the plane into a mountain. Yes. This guy... One short sentence about how Jimmy Hart programmed him. Yeah. He is in desperate need of a different gimmick. I'll give him this. He knows how acronyms work. Yeah. That's something. I'm trying to find a positive here. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely trying to find a positive here. I, I genuinely think the guy is doing his absolute best with the gimmick that he has been given. Oh, yeah. It's just that they have given him an absolutely terrible idea for a gimmick. Yes. That should not have been tried. What's well, the thing? Okay, so yeah, Warrior has a lot of faults, uh, personally and in the ring, obviously. No disrespect to the dead, but he ha- again, he had a presence. He had this <laughs> look where, if you were a non wrestling fan, if you saw Warrior, you'd be like, "Whoa, who's this guy? I gotta see what this guy's up to." This genuine interest in this guy. Not only he has a physical presence, like when you see him and Hogan, it's like a big faced off. These two mountains of steroids and uh, tanning, you know, tanning spray. <laughs> But second you see them introduce Renegade, that promo where he appears in, like, there's dry ice and, like, smoke behind him, you realize he's not as big as Hogan. It's like he's a small guy. And I'm, yeah, he's in good shape. He's in good shape. Just, yeah. But, but he didn't have, like, this huge physical presence. Yes. Yeah. So it's just, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's doomed from the start. And the entire idea of the character is... Uh, we we thought that we had the ultimate warrior, or we we promised that we would have the ultimate warrior, and we don't. So yes. here's a guy that we can claim is warrior-ish, yeah. But he's he's not. It's the kind of thing that you shouldn't even try once. But if you do try it once, you should realize early that this has utterly failed, and just quietly stop doing it. And yes, yeah. I think the the legacy of the renegade, I guess, the character. Would be very different if it was so you bring him in, you have him a thing where he interferes and you know helps Hogan, and, you know the people that are attacking him, and you look at him and go, okay, this is not working. You didn't even have to really have him be written off. You just don't have him be shown again. Right. He was just he was here for that one surprise, and that's it. Yes. Yeah. 
it's like as we'll cover when we do Halloween Havoc ninety five with the the Yeti and all that. Mm-hmm. If they if they had done the same approach, you know, like the Renegade approach, you would have they would just kept doing the Yeti hanging around and trying to explain this and just they'd you know, make him a champion. Like the Yeti itself was bad enough on its own. Imagine it runs for six months and beats exactly. one of the greatest wrestlers ever for a title just to make the angle work. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Our second match is Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff versus The Renegade with the Mouth of the South Jimmy Hart for Renegade's WCW World Television Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So as mentioned, Paul Orndorff won the prestigious Slim Jim tournament, which took place on WCW Saturday night. Thankfully, Wikipedia lists all these tournaments, even the stupid ones, so it's very helpful finding these things out. The prestigious Slim Jim tournament involved four people. Paul Orndorff beat Jim Duggan, and then in the finals, he beat Flying Brian Pillman. At this point, I think he's just Flying Brian. His last name has vanished in the wind. As they note on commentary, this happened back in May, and we're in July now. So for some reason, he wins his title in May, and they don't bother to give him a title shot for a while, which is a little weird. When he wins the tournament, the champion is Arn Anderson. However, between then and the show, Arn Anderson loses the title to the Renegade. <sighs> yeah. I mean, again, as it's like clear, I'm not a huge Paul Orndorff fan, but a Paul Orndorff versus Arn Anderson match, much better than this. Without even seeing it. I, I'd be down for that. Like that's, Absolutely, yeah. I think they could work well together. Absolutely. Yeah, you robbed me of Arn Anderson, Renegade. I have more reasons to boo you. <laughs> yeah. I really wish somehow this involved Renzo Lamas' Renegade and not the Oh, guy. yeah. <laughs> Especially with, uh, we'll see Hogan's talk later about riding Harleys up and down the, exactly, down yeah. the road. Right. It writes itself. Orndorff doesn't come out in the usual robe because it is way, way too hot out for that. Yes. Hart leads Renegade out to a ripoff of Ultimate Warrior's theme. I can't believe that Hart bothered to get a Renegade-themed jacket made for himself, but the man is a completionist, I guess. Yes. Renegade does his warrior run down to the ring, and a warrior-esque turnbuckle pose, and I am sure that I heard boos over his music. Yes, you did. Renegade knocks Orndorff down, but Orndorff lands strikes and yells at Hart. The crowd cheers Orndorff. The heel. Yes. Renegade lands clotheslines and knocks Orndorff outside, so Orndorff throws himself all the way to the sand. The crowd chants, Wonderful! Wonderful! <laughs> this is not working. No. Renegade awkwardly drags Orndorff back in by his head and puts on a headlock, and Orndorff audibly tells Renegade to dropkick him. Yes. Renegade hits the worst dropkick this side of Eric Watts. Well, he, he hits the worst dropkick in this match so far. Yeah. Hitting about waist-high with one leg. Yes. Dreadful. Yeah. Orndorff rolls out and grabs some sand, throws that in Renegade's eyes, and Patrick quickly looks away for no reason. Well, the sun was in his eyes. Orndorff wears Renegade down with a suplex, neck hold, strikes, turnbuckle ram, and actual dropkick, as even Tony highlights. Yeah. Renegade escapes the pile driver and hits more weird drop kicks. <laughs> What's he? He like jumps up and kind of like then kicks his foot out, so he kind yeah. of gets one foot up. He at least gets a better elevation that time. He does, yeah. It really reminds me of when they would take the divas who they barely trained but hired mm. and put on TV because they're really good looking and mostly blonde, and they say, "Yeah, throw drop kicks," and they you know, they spend like 
I don't know, a month learning with Fit Finley at this point. So they would do a dropkick, and then they get, like him, they get the one leg out, but it's it's hard, I mean, not trying to undersell it, I'm sure it's hard to learn to jump up and then kick both legs out, because you got to really trust yourself. Right, yeah. It is for the like, landing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not, We're not saying dropkicks are easy. No, no. But this is a skill that a lot of wrestlers learn, and Renegade does not appear to have received proper tutoring in it. No, he has not. His power slam's okay. I will give him his, I'll yeah. give him that. It's really slow. Yes. Yeah, but it, but the form is fine. Yeah, yeah. He, he he rotates properly, which is good. Orndorf dumps him outside, but back in. Renegade kind of slips sideways awkwardly out of a suplex attempt. Yeah. I think they were going for the float over, but he just didn't have the momentum. No, I don't think so. Yeah. And he hits a basic belly-to-back suplex for the three count and the win. Tony notes he thinks Orndorff got his right shoulder up, but Patrick didn't notice, but Renegade is declared the winner. As he celebrates with his belt, Orndorff beats him up and hits the pile driver to cheers. Renegade no-sells Orndorff's finisher and cross-bodies him to the booze of the crowd. Orndorff just rolls back out and poses for the crowd, who cheer him while the camera focuses on Renegade posing with the belt, so it looks like Renegade is getting cheered. Yes, I noticed that as well, yeah. Inspired move by Orndorff there. He made use of the crowd's reaction to him to try again to get a good reaction for Renegade. That is honestly a really good audible, yeah. Yeah. Sure. You can tell he's a veteran. He like realized, okay, this is not working, but my mission is to get this guy over, so I'm going to, like I said, pull an audible here. Yeah. Both commentators get distracted by attractive ladies in the crowd. Yes. The replays show that Orndorff did appear to get his shoulder up, actually. Yes. Thoughts on this one? It's a pretty rough match, but at the same time, it's also really basic. So, you know, there's some times where, I think we've probably covered a couple of these, where maybe the wrestlers get a bit too... Um, ambitious. Ambitious, that's what I think you. They get too ambitious, like, let's try this move, and then they just don't. There's a ladder match between RVD and Jeff Hardy. Jeff's hanging from the like the little buckle with holding the belt. RVD's like, ooh, I'm going to jump off the top rope and kick you into a fall. And he doesn't think that, oh, I can't possibly make that distance or height. <laughs> so that is ambition in your body, to a certain extent, failing you. This is you failing at basic things like drop kicks. Honestly, if you look at it, when he does the clothesline of the ring, he's, his positioning is actually off on that as well. Mm-hmm. He's too close. He runs up, he's like right next to Warndorf and then throws the clothesline. Yeah. Where you really throw the clothesline as you're coming into him, so he can lean with it. So... Orndorff really has to pull himself over out of the, out of the ring more than he's supposed to. Mm-hmm. When the high point is someone throwing sand, <laughs> I mean, yeah. No offense to Paul Orndorff, he really does try here. Mm-hmm. You can tell both audibly and just with your eyes that he's calling this match through for Renegade and trying to get him to do what he can do. Mm-hmm. That's probably why there's so many clotheslines. Yes. Because he's like, okay, you got that. Just do a clothesline, we'll figure something else out. Because when he tries things he doesn't know what to do, like when he sort of pulls Orndorff really slowly over the top rope. That was the weirdest looking spot. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to pull you really slowly and then uh, let go. It's like he forgot what the second part of his move was, is what that looks like. I don't think that's what it is. I think that was the move, but it makes it look like you forgot the second part of your move. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Uh, The finish is not really helping Renegade. If they didn't expect the heel reaction he got, it's weird. Be weird that they booked this finish. Yeah, I was I was going to ask because I haven't really seen Renegade matches. Is that his finisher? Uh, no. Okay. 
I, I I watched more than I wanted to in Philip to this <laughs> over the matches, which is more than one. Does he do a warrior splash thing or what? Yes, he he, he well he I've seen him do top row splashes to win as well. Okay. The booking is just weird. If that's the case, like if he's really the face and he didn't adjust it, because yeah, he definitely gets a heelish victory unintentionally. Because I mean, Order of Blatantly does get a shoulder up, but the logic is Nick Patrick is staring straight down at the ground mm-hmm. or the, the ring, the canvas, to watch that one shoulder, and has no peripheral vision apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, he has a referee, so. Yes. I have seen people theorize, and I I don't know that anyone has ever said this is the case, like, that was actually there. But I have seen people theorize that this was uh, someone calling an audible backstage and saying, this is not working, just end it. That's possible, yeah. Something I noticed when I was re-watching this show in my notes is two matches in a row where a face-painted good guy with the title belt gets a cheap victory. (laughs) That's true. And it's a weirdly exact booking on this show. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think Orndorff is trying his absolute best here. He really is. He sold big for Renegade to make him look powerful. He tried to add some interest with the creative sand throw spot. He tried a lot of heelish cheating and yelling at the crowd to try to get booed. Unfortunately, the crowd is just not in the mood for an Ultimate Warrior ripoff. Yeah. And Renegade was just not ready for pay-per-view level matches. No. He just didn't really have much in the way of moves, and he didn't have the moves he could perform down all that well. Yeah. I think most of his clotheslines, like you noted, looked pretty well, except for the one out of the ring. Yeah. I blame WCW much more than Renegade himself, to be clear. Of course, yeah. They saddled him with a gimmick consisting entirely of pretending to be a different performer from a different organization. He could likely improve if he didn't have to spend all of his energy trying to be somebody else, And if he was given time to train for a little while longer, instead of someone saying, hey, you kind of look like Warrior, get out there. Yeah, right. This was doomed from the start. The fact that they kept this going for months rather than just sending the guy back for more training and a new gimmick is asinine, and is not fair to the performer. No, of course, yeah. And it's a giant shame, especially as I'm aware his story has a very sad ending. Yeah, agreed. As for this match... Orndorff probably made it better than it would have been, but it was still bad and should not have been on pay-per-view. No. I am curious, when we go back around and do Grand American Bash, where the Arn match happens, it'll be interesting to compare the two and mm-hmm. see, can Arn get a better match out of this guy, or is are we seeing the best version with Orndorff? Yeah, it, that, that would be an interesting contest. I feel like there's also on, I don't remember what show, but I feel like there's a Renegade DDP match as well. Um, Yes, that is something coming up later, in fact. Okay. Page obviously is another guy that you kind of has a has a style that could work with a less experienced performer, yeah. as we will see later in the show. So our great value ultimate warrior would be defending his title at Fall Brawl. He would win a rematch against Paul Orndorff at the same class of champion show, so maybe that's better. <laughs> I mean, obviously he couldn't throw sand in him in that match. I mean, he could, I guess he could have brought some with him. Yeah, yeah. Be prepared. Yeah, bring your pocket sand. But yeah, so we have that to look forward to. Okay. More Renegade. Still champion. Tony talks up the Dungeon of Doom's beginning with Kevin Sullivan and throws to a video of the entry of a new warrior in the Dungeon of Doom's roster. Kamala. (laughs) Father, I have dragged from the Goblet of Darkness. And now I feel your power. Father, now I know 
why we can crush the immortal Hulkamans and all those Hulkamanians. Father, what gift do you give me next? I can't wait. with most things Dungeon of Doom, this is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> I love Sullivan claiming that he's drunk from the Goblet of Darkness, this low-budget fantasy TV show prop goblet with dry ice smoking from inside. Yes. And then repeatedly looking down at it like, I'm totally going to drink, but please cut the camera so I don't actually have to do it. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the master who bellows every single word of every single line. Imagine how awful that was for his vocal cords. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Kamala character himself is racially insensitive at best. Yes, yes, yes. It's worth noting WCW did not design the character. No. James Harris started portraying Kamala in 1982 in the Continental Wrestling Association, and the idea reportedly came from Harris, Jerry Lawler, and Jerry Jarrett. That makes sense. That said, WCW did bring the character into the angle and keep the highly questionable portrayals, so they're not guiltless here. Correct. I was curious about the whole uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and you know, his Ugandan giant and all that. Mm-hmm. I was curious, like, what the relationship spatially was between those two places. Like, if it makes if it makes any sense, T- Tanzania, which is where Mount Kilimanjaro is, is uh, very far away from Uganda. Well, it just means he he's a good hiker. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I really wonder what's up with the master. Guy, like, why he? Well, I that, I could just end that sentence there, honestly. <laughs> True, yes, but no, I wonder, like, what's with his delivery? My working head canon is that maybe he had really bad eyesight, so he's never quite sure where 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 Kevin Sullivan is. So he's always yelling at him. Yes, like, where are you? <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it's the it's the greatest delivery in wrestling history, right? Yeah, it's it's so. Just amazingly over the top. I don't know who told him to scream every single word that he ever says, but yeah. they deserve a raise. <laughs> yeah. I think it was a joke when we were um, talking about the show afterwards. I feel really bad for the people that were in the studio when they're recording yes. this. Anyone in earshot, yeah. Yes, because as we'll, as we'll talk about, there's more people that will be in there, and they all similarly are very loud. Yes. And they're all just shouting at each other in like a 10-foot space. Yeah, I do, I do not envy the camera crew or the audio guys for, for those promos, any of them. No, no, not at all. We cut right from that to Gene, who is with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. 
Well, I can guarantee you one thing, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, I'm not spending a lot of time with Jack LaLanne. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, come on in. I just don't care, Gene. I tell you, time and time again, time and time again, Hacksaw Duggan comes out here and I try to play by the rules. I got Nick Bockwinkle breathing down my neck saying, Duggan, watch the rules or you're going to get fined. Well, fine. I've been trying to play it up on top, but things are getting out of hand. So, Mean Gene, I'm making a statement. <clears throat> no more, Mr. Nice Guy. If you guys want to move furniture, understand this. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, I'm not shy about using this 2 by 4 So, come on. And you know who his manager is, Mean Gene? The Taskmaster. You know who his manager is, Mean Gene? You know who his manager is, Mean Gene? So understand this, Taskmaster. Hacksaw Duggan will strike to take you down. Hacksaw Duggan will strike down Kamal, and I'll prevail. Tough guy. Hacksaw Jim Duggan to face Kamala. Tony Schiavone, you got your cross to bear. Let's get back to the ring. There's a a bit of a thing with wrestlers on this show during the promos asking Mean Gene a question and Mean Gene actually answering it correctly, but them ignoring him. Yeah. Duggan does it here. Uh, Vader does it later in his promo as well. Oh, that's true, yeah. Because, like, what time is it? And Gene says, Vader time, and Vader just, like, ignores him and claims that someone needs to tell him what time it is, even though he got it right. (laughs) Correct, yeah. (laughs) I kind of liked this promo overall, actually. Duggan leans into the fact that, he, well, he's a babyface, he tends to have some trouble actually following the rules in matches, something we've noted several times on our show. Yeah. It doesn't so much feel like he's complaining about Bachwinkle getting on him for rules violations so much as he's complaining that he gets called out when his opponents get away with it. Right. So there's a, a little bit of complexity there, which is nice. Yeah, it's it's a nice little detail, even though if his promo is all shouting and tough guy and yeah. repeating himself, yeah. Yeah, just I, I like to see him actually acknowledge that element of his character rather than ignore the fact that he frequently has, shall we say, rules amnesia. Yeah. Well, the company does as well. So much when he does his tape fist thing, he'll tape up behind the ref back, punch a guy, and he'll win the match, but then he'll still have the, the fist, fist all taped up hanging there. Yes. Even the, like, the end of the, the roll is still hanging on. The ref will literally <laughs> raise his hand by that fist and yes. think nothing of it, yes. But remember, it is if the referee didn't see it, it didn't happen, you know, unless it did, like last year. So Yes, correct. Yeah, I just I, I liked that he added that little touch of complexity to this. I, I appreciate when wrestlers actually acknowledge that kind of thing, and he mm-hmm. he, he did a pretty fair job here. Yeah, it, I mean, it's still hacks like Jim Duggan promo. So you're like, your mileage may vary on how much you enjoy it. Yeah, but yeah, I agree with that. Our third match is Kamala with the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So, back at Sambury, as we covered already, Sullivan left the arena when he started hearing a strange voice calling him after he won his match. As I recall, his boring, terrible match, if I remember correctly. So we see a video package where he's just running through the woods somewhere. It's a very funny package, because he's, like, running, and, like, the voice is calling him, and it's like, I'm coming! And he's shouting, and he's just running. He's still wearing his little wrestling speedo. Yeah, it yeah, looks like a dude running randomly through the woods in his underpants and wrestling boots. Yeah, it's like- exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so he'd, he'd finally find his way via teleportation, albeit very low-budget teleportation. Just kind of fades out and fades in somewhere else. Still still higher budget than the teleportation in Max Magician. Yes. 
Now that's a deep cut reference for anybody. <laughs> Feel free to track the movie down. Explain what that joke means. Don't track that movie down. <laughs> oh, no, you should. Anyways. But yeah, so he meets, as we saw in the promo, meets the master who tells him repeatedly that their victory over Hulkamania is written in stone, or he'll sometimes say carved in stone. Etched in stone. Yeah, I'll say, yeah, he said it a couple of ways. But yeah, etched in stone is the more common one. In his loud, bellowing, constantly shouting voice. Again, he appears in his ring gear from Slamboree, his little wrestling speedo and boots, runs in the little cave area, like behind where the Master's big chair he never leaves is, and just comes out through a cloud of dry ice smoke, wearing his red flash tracksuit. Yes. So apparently that is, that is part of his transformation. That's, it's like the weirdest outfit, right? For for yeah. this angle, that you're like, mm-hmm. the entire idea is like mystic cult leader kind of... Former druid. Former druid, yes. Former, former druid. This is not what they would be wearing at, you know, Stonehenge. No, no. Like the master outfit, okay. You know, it's kind of the weird, creepy black robe. But yeah, Sullivan, like why they thought red and yellow tracksuit, even red and yellow robe would have been okay. Yeah. But the tracksuit. It's very odd. It's very strange. I've still never understood his face paint either. It's like the two weird, like, ducks drawn on his face. And she- <laughs> I, I, I think it was ducks, or I think I've said before it's like um, Nessie, like the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, yeah. He has two of those on his forehead, which also is also part of his transformation, by the way. And as we saw in the promo, he would later be gifted the warrior Kamal after quote unquote drinking, as you noted, from the Goblet of Darkness, which he immediately draws once Kamala shows up. Yes. Well, he's already received the gift. Yes. I didn't see any interaction between them, like Kamala and Duggan. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just Duggan's a Hogan buddy. Yeah. And you know, he's a le- right level face to be fighting Kamala. So far as I know, there's no personal interaction. Duggan doesn't like the Dungeon of Doom. The Dungeon of Doom don't like Hulkamaniacs. So. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That is one advantage of like faction warfare angles, kind of, is you don't necessarily need to set something up for the individual performers for every match. Mm-hmm. In the feud, you can just say, these guys are in opposing factions, and that kind of does work. Yeah, exactly. Kamala comes out with a tribal mask on and looks around at the crowd, acting distracted by them. Speaking of distracted, Heenan gets distracted by attractive ladies in the crowd again as he tries to talk about Sullivan's, quote, father in the Dungeon of Doom, the Master. Mm-hmm. Duggan comes out with a U.S. flag and his 2 by 4 Heenan gets a great line in. Forget your 2 by 4 You're going to need a whole tree to beat that man, pal. You're going to need a lumber yard. <laughs> nice. USA chant. They trade blows, and Duggan uses bizarre short jumping headbutts and a clothesline to knock Kamala down. Another USA chant. Kamala eye poke, and Taskmaster yells Hulkamaniac, so Kamala will beat up the person he's already beating up. <laughs> Just to reinforce it. Lots of choking and a bear hug. Joy. This is like the worst bear hug I've ever seen. It's, it's really bad. Duggan KOs himself with a headbutt, but keeps his arm up on the third try. Another USA chant. Duggan stomps Kamala's bare feet, but Kamala dodges a headbutt and Duggan hits the turnbuckle. Very weird armpit hold by Kamala. Yeah. I don't get how that one's supposed to work. And Duggan bites him to get free. Duggan hits the three-point stance clothesline, but Taskmaster grabs Patrick, and Duggan does this weird jump to grab Taskmaster over Patrick, so Zodiac sneaks in and hits Duggan with Kamala's mask for the three-count and the win. Sullivan gets in and hugs Kamala's head, then leads him out of the ring. 
We get a nice shot of a sailboat, and Heenan gets annoyed that the replays aren't up yet. I don't want to talk about a sailboat, he whines. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, thoughts on this? So this is very much a throwback match in, for me, all the worst ways. Mm-hmm. Putting your point of view might enjoy this kind of thing, but yeah, it's real basic stuff. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Doug and Doc at a body slam Kamala. They do, they make a story of him trying to do it, but it's, it's not, it's not a thing that's going to happen. You're not going to have you're not going to have suplexes and all these sorts of more advanced moves. These guys, mm-hmm. they're going to do real basic stuff. They'll do decent little things like when Duggan can't quite knock Kamala down. He's replaced the crowd before the final knockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, they have good crowd interaction, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a real real eighties match. There's weird bits like okay, so. Kamala has, for like a half a second, has Duggan off the ground for the bear hug. He immediately just is on his feet and standing there just looking more annoyed than anything else. Yeah, Duggan like barely sells the bear hug at first. I I, have, yeah. I think I joked when we were watching it, oh, Duggan's as tired of bear hugs as I am. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like derisively at the camera and then does the worst version of that hand clap thing you're supposed to be doing to knock them loose. Because he doesn't even really make contact with Kamala. No. He claps his hand like an inch through behind his head, like more far more than that. Yeah. Since Kamala released him because he thinks he hears like what a like a squirrel. It's like, what's that? That's why I let him go because he's not making a physical contact. I've never liked this spot in general, but Piper makes it look like you're actually hitting the guy. Yeah. This is so bad. Uh, the finish is really predictable. Obviously, you get a lot of this kind of thing with Engine of Doom in the unimportant matches, and then otherwise you'll get run in. DQ finishes a lot. Again, to your point about Dungeon of Doom being a testing out of the NWO format. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> yes. But yeah, looking at this match, do you think Duggan is really going to job clean? Probably not. No, yeah. No. Yeah, there's not much to this one. It's just two big guys landing strikes and chokes on each other. The most interesting thing in the match was Duggan's very strange side hop headbutt thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it... it it looks like he lost his balance trying to bow or something. I, it doesn't look like he's intentionally doing an offensive move. Uh, yeah, I can see that. The ending spot is just awkward. It looked like Duggan was intentionally continuing to grab Patrick so his view of Zodiac would be blocked. Obviously, that is what's going on, but it's not supposed to look like that's what's going on. Right, yes. It's a really weird ending for a quite poor match. To me, it's also a little weird that they're so obsessed with beating a Jim Duggan, after they win the match, they just leave. They don't have the NWO beatdown concept with right. uh, Dungeon okay. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the thing. Okay, so Zodiac runs in, hits him with a thing. I get why he gets out of the ring to the referee and go, hey, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. But he just actually leaves the whole area. He leaves ringside after yeah. that. I mean, credit for this. He's very confident. Yeah. He's like, well, that worked. Time to go. From personal experience, I've actually seen this match before. So back in, I want to say 2003, maybe 2004, we heard about it. it was a local show, which is like 15 minutes down the road from me, this place called the Expo Center, which sadly does not host any events anymore. It's just empty shell of buildings. It's kind of, no one's bought it. It's really weird. It's a nice space off the interstate road. It's weird. No one buys it. But anyways, yeah, we went because it was, they advertised, it was the main event of the show was Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler, oh, okay. which... I thought that even thought then it's weird these guys are still hitting each other with chairs at this point in their lives. They didn't really hold back. I was <laughs> like, oh, maybe we tone that down a little, guys. There's like 50 of us here. It's not worth it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 
One of the main matches was Kamala versus Jim Duggan. To be honest, I don't remember the match very well, but I'm guessing it was much better than this. That was- okay, I was going to ask, do you, do you have an evaluation of which version of the match is better? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a little different doing the crowd interaction in a very small space, mm-hmm. like they were in there. I think you can get a more more visceral response there, but at the same time, it's also not as loud. Yeah, fair. To answer that, I don't remember any holds or big moments from that match, no, because I'm guessing there really weren't any. <laughs> this match does bring back memories, albeit very, very foggy memories. Yes. <laughs> so fresh off this um, epic, I guess, win, Kamala would actually challenge the world champion for the WWE title at Clash 31. This really is 1985 all over again. <laughs> That's really the title match on that show. Okay. Tony builds up the upcoming lifeguard match between Flair and Savage, as Heenan points at an attractive lady in the crowd. We cut to Gene, who brings in Savage. Savage's shirt is actually a drawing of him from that Romeo and Juliet Slim Jims ad I mentioned before. Oh, nice. Saying, art thou bored? <laughs> oh, I do remember that. I see that. I do remember that now. Uh-huh. Awesome shirt. That line brings it back to me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Brain Heenan. What a marvelous, simply marvelous afternoon and evening here in Southern California. The hospitality second to none. For some folks, however, for others, a little shaky, I must say. Macho Man Randy Savage, come on in. You and I, earlier on in the main event, alluded to your big lifeguard match with the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. What this man has done to you, to family members, it can all come to an abrupt halt here this afternoon or this evening. At Slim Jim's back. And it will. Slim Jim's bash at the beach. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody getting excited. Yeah. There's a chill in the air and we're on the beach. What's up with that? Opposites do a track. The Nature Boy Ric Flair and the Macho Man Randy Savage have the chemistry to disagree. I agree to disagree with him. You know why? He's the styler and profiler, and he's been making a statement, but that statement is coming to an end here in a little while, and I guarantee you that. Yeah. Uh, what role are these lifeguards going to have? You know, Ric Flair has been known to take a hike periodically. I know you caught up with him a couple of times in Atlanta there on West Peach Street. You know what? I don't care who they are or what they are, what time of animal they are, it doesn't matter to me. It's all about emotion, and it's all about family, and it's all about survival. You know, I'm from Florida, and we're in California, but the common denominator is, is that we're on the beach. And you know, I feel real, real, real good on the beach. Slim Jims, bash at the beach. Understand the fact, nature boy, that the macho man is looking at you, zeroing in on you, and I'm gonna get you, yeah. Oh, yeah! Typical Savage promo here, simultaneously packed with emotion, building a good story, and just plain weird. Yes. Savage has good energy and makes you feel the length of this feud. It, in fact, started in the WWF. Yes. And mixes in a bunch of bizarre statements that make you go, huh? <laughs> Yes. Not a complaint, by the way. That's just Randy Savage. Exactly, yes. It is a little hard to take the emotion seriously with Macho dressed in Slim Jim's marketing gear, though. A a little bit, yeah. Besides the shirt, he also has a Slim Jim's baseball cap. He does, yes. Yeah. I do enjoy classic uh, Savage stick. This is the kind of thing, like we were talking about 
Renegade doesn't have that presence and that energy that Warrior has. Mm-hmm. I guess because Savage has all of it. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's always as always he's really fun. I will say you know, he's from Sarasota. Does, does Sarasota have a big beach? When I think of Sarasota, my first thought isn't beach. It's where Moat Marine is, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So I mean, it's at least like you know waterways and stuff. Right. In St. Pete, yes, beach. Tampa Beach, sure. But yeah, I don't know. Sarasota's not, not my first thought in the end. But yeah. It's all superior about your hometown. That's all it is, man. Well, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, obviously. That, that's, I mean, that's the theme of the show, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just getting on board. But yeah, it's funny what Savage, you watch his sort of mind working in real time. Because he like mentions Florida. And then he's like, I'm from Florida. We're in California. And then he's like, what's the connection? He's like, two seconds. And he says the connection. Yeah. Texas Beach. This is just, it's like beat poetry sometimes. With <laughs> yes, yes. He's just a little scatting along in the promo. But yeah, I, I did get your point that it's funny he's in this crazy Slim Jim stuff and he's talking about how serious he wants to beat up Ric Flair. His weird wordplay about opposite attracting, we agree to disagree. And- Which, by the way, saying I agree to disagree, it means we disagree with each other, but there's going to be peace between us. Yeah, that's definitely. It's not, it's not how Savage is using it. <laughs> yeah. Correct, yes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's Savage. I love Savage, so no complaints. All right. Our fourth match is Diamond Dallas Page with Max Muscle and the Diamond Doll versus Dave Evad Sullivan, supposedly with Ralph the Rabbit, though I didn't see one. No. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. So first off, it's worth noting that every match so far in this has a promo by one of the competitors before it. Yes. Except this one. Except this one, yeah. Why is Sishin not give Dave Sullivan promo time? And I guess they just don't care enough about DDP to give him promo time. <laughs> this is part of a longer story. DDP would come in. Once he become established star, he would have this rich benefactor, but then he'd lose all his money. This angle where he's like wearing the same gear all the time and just dirty. It's kind of weird, weird thing to do with him. Then he comes rich again from various confusing methods. They say something along the lines of Kimberly or him winning like $13 million in bingo, which is a, a lot for bingo, <laughs> I think. I'm mean, not, not being an expert, but yeah. <laughs> this whole thing was, the, now he's rich again, it would go, go to his head. He would, not physically, but he definitely would mentally abuse Kimberly. Mm-hmm. He'd berate her. That would lead to Dave Sullivan coming in and being nice to her. It's clear she's not really into him in that regard, but he's being nice and, you know, DP's being a jerk, so it's like, oh, hang around him, but now see. DDP does not like that. DDP would challenge Dave Sullivan to an arm wrestling match. And if he won, Dave Sullivan got to go on a date with her. Hijinks would ensue when he would actually win the match, that being Dave Sullivan. So now he get his date. The said date would happen on WCW Saturday night. They got to the dinner and they would really bad stick where he doesn't know what French words are or which fork is which. It's really, really bad. Oh, God. While they were getting ready with time to order, a man in a full rabbit costume would show up they bring a rabbit, Graham. Okay. That rabbit, <laughs> that man in the rabbit suit, Disco Inferno. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. Nice. A guy walks in, first thing I see beside the rabbit costume is his nose. <laughs> and I hear his voice, I'm like, yeah, that's Disco. Oh my gosh. He had been hired earlier in 1995. He's not Disco Inferno yet, he's probably just Glenn. Gilberti, is it? Glenn Gilberti, yeah. He got the lucky gig of coming in doing a rapid gram. Oh my gosh, that's funny. As far as first appearances go, that's pretty good. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah. 
they would scare Dave Sullivan. He left his rabbit in the car, apparently. Mm-hmm. Just sure. Why not? He went outside thinking that he was in, the rabbit was in danger, and Max Muscle and DP beat him up. So that would lead to this match because he's all upset, and Kimberly's also upset, but, you know, not really too much about it. DDP's music actually starts up while Gene is trying to wrap up his segment with Macho, drowning him out, as WSW abruptly cuts to a too-close shot of Paige. Mm-hmm. Comedy of errors there. Mm-hmm. Paige's music, by the way, currently sounds like Alice Cooper's School's Out, rather than Paige's later Nirvana ripoff. Yeah, I th- that's what I was thinking. It sounded like something. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> What's Jimmy Hart for you? Yep. Paige has a rather nice, shiny coat today. He does. A kid gets to the ring and offers the diamond doll some flowers, apparently from someone else in the crowd, but Paige jealously snatches them out of the doll's hands and repeatedly smacks her with the flowers as she shields herself with her large beach hat. Dave Sullivan makes his entrance and runs to the rescue. Sullivan knocks Paige through the ropes, then rams the flowers into his face. I hope Paige doesn't have allergies like I do. I can't imagine he'd book that if he did. Yeah. Sullivan lands strikes and chokes Paige, and yells, Shut up, Max, at a complaining Max muscle. Going by his gimmick, shouldn't it be, Shut up, Zam? Uh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Sullivan hits a suplex and goes for his inverted bear hug, but gets smitten with the doll, so Paige stomps his hands, beats him up, and yells at the doll that she's making him hurt Sullivan and it's not Paige's fault. Muscle rates a Paige clothesline a nine, but Sullivan catches Paige with a bear hug. Page escapes that, but Sullivan ducks a crossbody, and Page crosses himself on the top rope. Heenan notes, that could be worse. It could have been Heenan. <laughs> yeah. Sullivan ducks Page's spinning lariat, proving himself the smartest man in wrestling history. <laughs> Sullivan stomps Page's hand, then builds to the inverted bear hug, apologizing to the doll. Muscle gets to the apron, so Sullivan lets go and slugs Muscle, but Page clotheslines him and hits the diamond cutter for the three count and the win. Paige celebrates, but spots Kimberly checking on Dave, so goes over to drag her away and berates her. The replay shows that Paige accidentally slugged Muscle in the face when he clotheslined Dave at the end there. Oh, yeah, he did. Full in the face. Oof. (laughs) Ow. As we cut, Heenan asked my question, where's the rabbit? (laughs) Yeah. Thoughts on this one? Uh, Thankfully, this is a short match. It's Mm -hmm. pretty basic. So I was a little surprised. I don't know if you looked this up. Do you know how long Dave Sullivan was wrestling at this point? I do not know. He's been wrestling for six years. Wow, okay. You would not have guessed that from this match, would you? Uh, honestly, I, I have fairly decent feelings about this match. Uh, so okay. that doesn't surprise me in regard to this match. In regard to certain other Dave Sullivan matches I've seen, then uh, yeah. yeah. But Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, as we've noticed, he's not the worst worker on this show. I'm just, I just surprised him with that much experience. It's, I mean, his finish is basically if you try to do a powerbomb but can't lift the guy up properly. <laughs> Fair enough. That, that's what it is. Given his size, I'm glad... Well, besides the Boltman, really. I'm glad that going six on page for like a second or two. Cause yeah. I could go horribly wrong. Uh, credit where credit is due. DDP, at this point, obviously, he's not the great worker he would be later. He's still getting that experience in there. He's still working on his look. He still has the not-so-great diamond on his crotch and on his <laughs> Yes. On both sides, I don't know why he hasn't figured out that the blue jeans look better for him yet, and yeah. Yeah. His, his sort of superhero outfit is uh, not, not my favorite look. He does his good spots, he knows what his character is, obviously he gets much better with time, 
and with better opponents, thankfully. And at least the right man won. And the diamond cutter looked pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen uh, people not know how to take the diamond cutter and it go rather poorly, but uh, Sullivan does a, a fair sell of it. So that was, that was good. Yeah. For me, this was fine. And I give 80% of the credit for that to Diamond Dallas Page, mm-hmm. who I'm pretty sure would have put this match together and rehearsed it with Dave until they had every moment solid. Yes. But credit to Dave Sullivan as well. He was solid here, save for some odd mannerisms from time to time. His suplexes, I thought, were really nice in particular, actually. Yeah. He's not terrible. The match was short and brisk, and had a good general flow with a couple minor twists and callbacks, like Page stomping Dave's hands early on and Dave getting revenge later. Even in this short of a match, Page got in some genuine plot to it. Sure. This was still an average match, but a surprisingly average match, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I agree. Considering that you and I both spent the past two shows dreading a Dave Sullivan match, this was an astonishing achievement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you for the most part. I think it also might just be a um, positioning thing. Like, if, if this show didn't have a Renegade match on it, it doesn't have, you know, it wouldn't give it that buffer. But yeah, it's definitely not as bad as as I, as I thought it would be. I feel like I would still think that this one is fine. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm not saying it's terrible without that, but I don't think that, that definitely helps. Mm-hmm. As mentioned before, there would be a new challenger for the TV title against the Renegade, and that would be DDP. Okay, which will happen at Fall Brawl. I know you, but I'm rooting for the heel. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that that'll be interesting when we get to Fall Brawl to do the. Uh... Like we said earlier, do the comparison. Does DDP get a better match out of Renegade than Orndorff did? Yeah. His style could work. I mean, his binder approach works, people. <laughs> yeah. Give him his six things to do and then lose. We cut to Mean Gene, who is with tag champs Harlem Heat and Sister Sherry, all dressed in cool purple outfits with the flame highlights. Very good look for the group, I thought. Agreed. All right, they're getting a little crowded uh, here at Bash at the Beach, but it's going to be a little crowded. Sister Sherry in the ring for this unusual triangle match for your champions. It's going to be a little unusual, but not for the tag team champions because we are the number one cohesive unit in world championship wrestling. We are two-time world champions. Lord Steven Regal, Earl of Eaton, Nasty Girls, it doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter what you do out there because we are the ones that are going to come out on top. You know, I got to tell you something, Booker. This, this man Won't is you ju- just shut up, Gene Oakland? I just got a couple of things to say, and I'm going to make it fast and quick. Nasty boys, blue bloods, if you want some, you can get some, but you better be picking up bad enough to take some because tonight is going to be on like a steaming pot of neck bones cooking for about three days, man. You were stepping on my foot, Stevie Ray. You know, Mean Gene, your foot got in the way, just like the Nasty Boys have gotten in the way, just like the Blue Bloods have gotten in the way. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, today we will whoop two suckers, two tag teams at the same time, and it ain't going to be nothing to it. All right, I thank you very much. And Sister Sherry, I'm certain you're going to knock this crowd out when you appear out on the ring. Booker T, Stevie Ray, WCW Tag Team Champions. Ladies and gentlemen, this special triangle match. They cut poor Gene off again. Yeah. (laughs) Work on your timing, WCW. Craig is not a fan of me, Gene, I guess. Sherry, Booker, and Stevie all did a good job building themselves up as the superior tag team who's ready to face two challenging tag teams at once. 
Booker's line about neck bones is an interesting and complicated analogy, though. <laughs> yeah, he that's a, he likes that expression. He's a He's, he starts using it more as like it's going to be on like neck bone. Yes, yeah, yeah. He doesn't add the steaming for about three days bit, where it's like, okay, a little perplexing. A bit, yeah. Is it stronger or weaker if the neck bone is steaming for more time? I'm I'm not. I mean, it's like, it's like a crockpot thing. The more you do it, the the softer it gets. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. That's the idea. Nice quick thinking from Stevie at the end as he realizes that he can't just say they're going to whip two suckas as presumably that'd just be two people and there's four opponents. So he quickly yeah. amends to two tag teams. Yeah, that's true. And I really liked, I, I don't know if they'd actually planned this out beforehand or if he just ad-libs this, but I liked him playing off Gene, mentioning him stepping on his foot. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's scripted. That that felt like a natural sort of call-response thing, honestly. Yeah, yeah, they they really worked well. Like, he he did a good job just segueing from that to what he was going to talk about. Just excellent work there. Yeah, this show, I was thinking about it. This show is a dangerous one for poor Mean Gene's feet, because Sting drops his belt near the feet at one point. And his pro- yes. And then uh, Hacksaw drops his 2 by 4 by Gene's feet. Mm-hmm. And now Steve Ray step back on his feet. And Vader will come in and swing a chair down dangerously close to him as well. Yes, he will. Later on, so. Yeah, Mean Gene is uh, up for kind of a lot of abuse in this show. Hope he gets a hazard paid bonus for yeah. working the show, yeah. Our fifth match is the Blue Bloods, Lord Stephen Regal and Earl Robert Eaton, versus the Nasty Boys, Brian Nobbs and Jerry Sags, versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry, in a tag team triangle match for the Heat's WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Triangle match appears to mean a different thing just about every single time we hear it used. Yes. Unfortunately, this year it means one of my most hated rule sets ever. A tag match to first pinfall or submission, but with three tag teams where only two guys are in the ring at a time, but anybody can tag anybody. I hate that rule set. The strategy makes no sense. Why would you tag out to anyone but your own partner ever? Yeah. Elimination. Elimination. Totally fine. Add elimination, you're you're cool. Yeah, the heels refuse to tag in until they're forced into it. Right. That then you're not screwing up your chances of victory by tagging out to a different team entirely. But with this version, there's no guarantee your team's ever going to get tagged back in. Right. Yeah. The elimination version's a lot better, or the Slambury '99 version that we saw, where it's all three teams have a man in at all times, and you can only tag your own partner. They call that a triangle match, but it's obviously very different from this one. That makes sense as well. Yeah, that one is a triple threat match that happens to involve tag teams. Yeah, but this one, I just hate this rule set. They they literally just transposed the triangle match from, uh, was it uh, Starcade 95? Starcade 95, yeah, that, that one I was thinking about too. That's the one, yeah. That one, I remember saying, this does feel weird, but I was still able to get past it with that one because at least the, the wrestlers in that made use of the fact that they didn't want to tag out. Yes. No, agreed, yeah. It's still The rules still don't make sense, but they performed yeah. it well. But yeah, so this is literally them taking the triangle match, but making a tag team, which adds a whole other layer, which is not necessary. Yeah, yeah, because in that one, at least, it still doesn't make sense why you tag out to someone else, but at least if you're going to tag out because you're getting beaten up, your only choice is an opponent. Correct, yeah. In this match, if you're going to tag out because you're getting beaten up, you have a perfectly good choice in your own partner. So why would you ever go to someone else? Correct, yes. Yeah. Anyway, I will cease ranting about that for the moment. I will have more after the match. But uh, storyline? Uh, so the Nazi boys would be tag champions 
early on leading into this. However, there will be a rematch on WCW Worldwide in which Harlem Heat would win the titles back thanks to interference by the Blue Bloods. Okay. Of note, the Blue Bloods challenged Nasty Boys unsuccessfully for the tag titles at pay-per-view, thus them winning their revenge and just sort of by proxy helping the Harlem Heat. They don't really want them to win, but they also want to screw over Nasty Boys. That's right. That's some real 3D chess from the, uh, <laughs> the Blue Bloods there. To be fair to this match, the story going into it is that you have three teams all going for the title at the same time. Yeah. That said, they booked this kind of match mm-hmm. and not, say, um, some sort of gauntlet situation, maybe. Or the, the version that Slambury 99, like we said. Like or, that would be fine. Or the elimination one, yeah. Right. Or you could have, because you have a heel face dynamic, you could have just booked the Blue Woods versus the Nasty Boys for the number contendership. Mm-hmm. Fair. And then done like the triangle match, weirdly enough, where the winner goes right after the title following that. Yeah, you could do that, yeah. So I get the idea why all three teams are involved in this match, but the choice they made, not the best one. Yeah. As the Blue Bloods enter, ring announcer Penzer does at least clarify that if a team is disqualified, they're out, but the others continue to fight. Sometimes they don't specify that, so it's good to hear it clarified this time. Yeah. The Nasty Boys make their entrance next, and the Heat are last to enter, as Tony nearly pulls a Dusty, noting the Sea of Humanity on the beach. I did notice that, yes. <laughs> Nick Patrick conducts a somewhat overcomplicated coin toss to decide the two starting teams. So here's how this works by my understanding. Each team flips its own coin, with whichever two come up matching starting. If all three match, they have to flip again. And indeed, on the first throw, all three come up heads. Also, on the first throw, the Nasties didn't even manage to catch their coins, so Patrick had to find it on the mat. Yeah. On the second toss, it all goes a little bit better, as Nobbs catches his coin properly, and we only get two that match, the Nasty Boys and Harlem Heat. There had to be an easier way to do that. Yes. Honestly, like I said when I'm watching this, if you had just told me that you did coin toss in the back, I would have been fine. Exactly, yeah. They don't have to do this live. No, no they don't. <laughs> Heenan claims if he were the Blue Bloods, he wouldn't accept a tag from the Heat or the Nasties. Well, then you wouldn't win, Heenan. You see? Yeah. You see how stupid these rules are? Yes. (laughs) Suddenly, everybody's in, regardless of the coin flip, and the Nasties win an opening brawl as Heenan asks who's legal. The match proper starts with Booker and Nobbs. Nobbs overpowers Booker until Regal tags himself in off of Nobbs, which I'll admit is a nice use of the rules. Mm -hmm. Booker, Stevie, and Sherry beat up the Blue Bloods as the camera misses a Regal Eaton tag. Tony gets so confused, he calls Booker Stevie. <laughs> Sag sneaks in a tag on Eaton before Stevie hits an awkward slam on Eaton. Looked like they were going for a tilt-a-whirl, but didn't quite have the right momentum. Yeah, I thought that too. Sags and Nobs beat Stevie down, then trade out to Regal for unknowable reasons. Stevie tags Booker, Regal tags Eaton, and Eaton tags Stevie, but Patrick rules that making Stevie fight Booker is stupid, so that's illegal making this a slight improvement over other WCW and WWF versions of these rules. Mm-hmm. Eaton shoves Booker to the Nasty's corner and tags Nobbs, which Tony notes is to Eaton's disadvantage. When the commentary team is pointing out the flaws in the match concept, you have a dumb match concept. Yes. Weird spot as Booker gets a boot up on a charge, but then spins wildly over the ropes and falls to the floor. What, what was that? <laughs> yeah... I don't quite get it. It, it kind of looks like he's going for like a head scissors type move almost, but 
like in reaction to his foot getting hit, which is weird. Right. The Nasties and the Blue Bloods inexplicably trade off, beating Booker up, and earn two off a of Nob's splash, and one off a of Sag's Nob's shoulder block, even though Regal had tagged in and Sag's was no longer legal. <laughs> there are no rules for rules, claims a completely baffled Heenan. Whatever rules there is in this match, there are none. This is the fight club of matches. That, that's almost a dustyism, Heenan. <laughs> yes, it is. The crowd has a really interesting hierarchy in this. They chant for the nasties over the heat, but they chant for the heat over the blue bloods. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Yeah. Eventually, Booker fights free and tags Stevie, as both commentators are confused if a tag happened again. Heenan openly states the match makes no sense. Yes. After several more nonsensical tags, Stevie ends up fighting knobs in the heat corner. Booker gets two with a Harlem sidekick, which a distracted Tony calls a high knee. Heenan repeatedly claims that you can only win the title if you beat the champs, Mm -hmm. and Tony doesn't correct him as he's too busy trying to make sense of the action. He finally does correct Heenan as Regal has a hold on knobs, and Heenan, rather brilliantly, admits that he forgot the rules, and in the same breath, claims he'd always said the Blue Blood should pin the nasties. Yes, it's great. Sags saves knobs, so Regal tags Stevie, because why try to win? (laughs) Yeah. Everybody trades in and out, and we end up with Regal and Sags legal. Everybody in, but Nobbs flings Eaton into Stevie to knock both to the floor. Nobbs back body drops Regal, Sags back body drops Booker onto Regal, Nobbs splashes both, and Sags sits on Booker, who is atop Regal, for the three count. But wait! Because Booker was underneath Sags's buttocks, and on top of Regal, it turns out that Booker is the winner, despite not being the legal man and that therefore being completely impossible. Boy, this is nuts, Tony notes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I know we normally have you start first on thoughts. Do you mind if I start first on this one? Feel free. I have a feeling like you may have at least a slight positive comment. I'll, 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 I'll do my best. Yeah, I'll do my best. Despite the action being fine, I absolutely hated this, because the match plot is flat out stupid. The commentary team repeatedly pokes holes in the entire concept because they can't help but do that. There is no way to discuss the match strategy without revealing the match concept makes zero sense and requires teams to act in ways that are completely counter to their interests. You know, we mentioned the Flair, Luger, and Sting match from Starcade 1995 earlier, and as I noted, I felt like that one at least used the psychology of not really wanting to tag even though it was still weird, but at least they got the idea that, oh, I don't actually want to tag out. Right. The idea can work in that because, especially with Flair, you know you could just run in and hit him and break up the thing until you can recover yourself a bit and then tag in when you think Sting is vulnerable or think Luger is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. With less people and a simpler story, it works a little better. And Flair actually manages to win that one while he's tagged out because he gets them both outside and they get counted out. So, like... He uses the match concept again. Like, the entire plotting of that one is better, even though the match concept is still kind of dumb. Yeah. I definitely was not a a fan of that match when it happened, but that comparison is great. Yeah. But yeah, in this one, teams repeatedly willingly tag out to another team when they have their opponent weakened, which is the worst possible time to do that. (laughs) Yeah. To make matters worse, the ending is awful. Yes. Sags clearly knows that Booker is there when he sits down, so why would he sit on Booker atop Regal if that would give Booker the win? And why would that give Booker the win? Sags and Regal are the legal men. Right. 
Also, take a shot every time Tony or Heenan asks if there was a tag or gets mixed up about the rules. You'll be drunk like a third of the way through this match. Yeah. I would declare this one of my three worst matches of the series already, but I know there's really bad stuff on 1999 and 2000, so I'll hold off. Yeah. Okay, I'll try and bring us back from the brink here. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. So, there's two parts of this match, really. So there's the main part of the match, and then the finish. So breaking that down, the main part of the match, other than the nonsensical tagging out thing, as mentioned, Mm -hmm. really makes the Nasty Boys look strong, because they definitely fight well against both teams. They get in their their shtick where they both, you know, their armpits and all the heels' faces. There's that weird bit where Booker T takes the clothesline, but it's actually off his armpit. Ian does a little spin off of that, which is strange. Mm -hmm. Up until the other part, Nasty Boys look like they're the dominant team that's going to win. Harley Meek can take control with cheating, and Blue Buds just kind of are also there and occasionally do a cool spot. Companies even make a point of thing that Blue Buds don't really show great technical cohesion until like the final part of the match before the finish happens. Yeah, I think Heenan, I think it is, that also says, I don't think the Blue Bloods understand this match. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. I had noted the rules are too silly for the commentators to keep up with, which is definitely a problem. Mm-hmm. It always takes me back to early TNA when they come up with these really convoluted matches like the King of the Mountain match. Yeah. When they go, it's really simple, folks, and then a graphic appear with like 300 words on it bracketed in like 10 sections like oh it's so simple (laughs) yes so so simple now second part makes the nasty boys look like the dumbest team on earth yes admittedly my opinion of them was about there anyways but it really just sort of drives it in for me drives it home yeah in theory this finish is clever in theory and I, i can see thinking about how to do a finish with this kind of match i could see why they would go this general direction the idea that Harlem Heat just end up in the right position to win. How this could have worked slightly better is if you do everything the same way. Honestly, as I understand the point that Booker is not a legal man, but that's lost in so many tag team matches. I, I accept that as part of the rules. I have to do it all the time. So have the thing happen where Regal's down and then Booker T is dropped onto him. Then the Nash boys sort of Sure, shove him away because they're going to do one more splash on to Regal. However, there's a slight delay because they switch out to make sure the right person's pinning, so they're trying to follow the rules as best they can. However, before they go for the pin, Booker puts his arm over, say, Regal's legs. So he's crawl- he crawls over out of their sight. Yeah, if they don't know he's there, yeah. Yes. His arm is there a split second or two before they go for the pin. So quickly that the ref starts counting and they go, oh, he's counting our pin. And then they don't realize that the other pin was first. Yes. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously, like you said, that still runs into the problem of which guy's the legal man. Yeah. But, I mean, as you noted, that gets lost in a ton of tag matches anyway, so people would be prepared to accept that. Yeah. I do think you could have resolved that slightly as well by, if you managed to have Booker make a sneaky tag in. Sure. Then that's done a lot in these kind of multi-man matches as well. Right, yeah. So I think it, there there were ways to resolve the ending a little bit more than than they did. I agree. Like your method definitely resolves the uh, wait. Why would the nasties do this if they know that that would be Booker on top of the guy? Yeah. Like it it doesn't make sense that that should result in Booker's victory, and yet the nasty boys still do it. Right. Like it's it's a weird it's such a weird ruling. The other thing that's worth noting is as dumb as this finish is, the execution is kind of funny. Because of the spacing, they do a decent 
really good back body drop, getting him to go right in the center there. And then um, they're like, okay, good, Regal's here. I'm going to back drop you. And he starts to whip him and he realizes, oh, wait, we're way too close. Because mm-hmm. we're like in, we're near the middle of the ring where he's laying there. So they have to do a little dozy doe thing where he has to throw Bokuchi back in the corner and then have him running out of it so we can back drop yeah. on him. Yeah. It really reminds me of when you play the wrestling games. Because in those games, I don't know if 2K23 has this the same way anymore, but it was really loose with how you could counter. It was just hitting the button at the right time. Not You had to like pick different buttons like some games did. So you try to throw someone off by, like instead of you know hitting X to, say, clothesline them, and they know, oh, a clothesline come I should hit the counter button. People like me would have fun sort of you know, changing direction on the throw just to throw the timing off. I know you mm-hmm. enjoyed that quite a bit. Yes. So that reminded me of that. Like, dozy do. Now, now I'm going to buy something. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> so that's the one joy I got of that match, besides laughing and how stupid it was. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. You, you had a little bit more positivity there, even if it was uh, still laughing at the match. But <laughs> yeah, as noted, the actual action of the match is fine. Yes. Yeah, I don't have a problem with their overall performance. It's just the plotting on this one that is so, so bad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Speaking of fusion, I have a little confusion here, so try to stick with me. Technically, when this match happened, Harlem Heat were not tag champions. Oh, God. You see, back on June 21st, a match was taped for WCW Saturday night, in which the Harlem Heat lost the tag titles to Dainty Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck. <laughs> Dainty Dick Slater? Yes, I don't want to say their name. Oh, okay. He's Dainty Dick Slater now. So that match, anyway, that match was taped on June 21st. So on this show, which is July 16th, they really shouldn't be champions. However, due to their pre-taping, that match didn't air until July 22nd, six days after this match. Gal, pre-tapes again. <laughs> yep. At least we don't have the negative title reign we had back with the... Um... Freebirds, wasn't it? Yes, thank you, the Freebirds. Yes. <laughs> Where they had like a negative eight-day title reign, which is a little yes. weird. So lead to a six-person tag match at Casa Champions between Dick Slater and Broncos Buck and their manager versus Harlem Heat and Sherry. They would begin the angle where Sherry and Carl Parker were falling in love with each other. Gotcha. As part of that, Harlem Heat would win the match, thus getting the number one contendership for Fall Brawl. Okay. So thus the time-torn belts would be defended at that show. <laughs> one less bit of confusion for the, uh, for, the, for the cake there. Oh, God. <laughs> Tony and Heenan still try to figure out the match, and we cut to Gene, who is with Harlem Heat once again. I think they feel very fortunate at this juncture. Fortunate. Booker, fortunate. yes, fortunate, Gen- fortunate, what, fortunate. I am just. We have just shown you the most cohesive tag team in WCW. What greatness really means, meaning that we are still. The WCW Tag Team Champions. Can I be? I'm only the messenger, but I think the bearer of... Hey, man. Rather let me tell you something. The whole world just saw exactly what me, my brother, and my sister told you we was going to do. Right. We took two fat punks and took two so-called foreigners and whooped them just like the dogs. They really are. And we beat them at the same time, baby. And guess what? We still the best. It ain't nothing you suckers out here on the beach. Can do about it. Gentlemen, can I bring something up for the what? record? You know that earlier tonight in the main event, 
Bunkhouse Buck and his partner Dirty Dick Slater came up with a very big victory and as a result they're going to have an opportunity to challenge you for these tag teams. Well, let me counts. tell you something, Gene Oakland. Me, my brother, and my sister, as the whole world know, we are not closet champions. We will put the belt on the line against anybody. That means all these stinking fans out here. That means the Blue Bloods. That means the Nasty Boys. And that certainly means Colonel Parker and his stud stable, if you know what I'm saying. Well, I would certainly underestimate the capabilities of Bunkhouse Buck and Dick Slater. They fared very, very well as of late. No, we do not underestimate anyone. Bunkhouse Buck, Dick Slater, Colonel Parker, being that you scored that nice little victory tonight, you as the number one champions as of now will get your title shot. As we said, we are not closet champions. We don't run from anybody. We go face to face. Thank you very much, Booker T, Stevie Ray, Sister Sherry. Get some. You better want some. But, buddy, I'm going to tell you, you better be bad enough to come take some. All right. I thank you very much, gentlemen. The Heat did fine with this for the most part, though uh, Sherry does manage to accidentally call Buck and Slater number one champions rather than number one contenders. I'm guessing that's because of the... uh, timey-wimey stuff that you mentioned <laughs> yeah probably she knows they actually are the champs <laughs> yeah she knows that she was yeah she's always there for that match yeah that's funny I, I i just thought it was a weird verbal slip up originally but after you told me that story i'm like oh i know why that happened now yeah but yeah the heat present themselves well overall as fighting champs though uh they make an interesting mix of bravery and heelishness and being willing to take on all comers including apparently the fans yes but also very much accepting their cheap and weird win from the last match I'd just be glad to be done with that match, too, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfectly fine promo, I think. It's kind of weird that they interview him after the match about another match on TV a bit, but I guess you got to build up things. Yeah, and I think they need some time for um, wrangling all the people they're going to need for the next True, match. True, yeah. So I think that's why this happens. No, I can see that. Uh, I did like that Sherry took her uh, promo lessons from the master there, <laughs> yes. shouting at full volume. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, first says I, and then just says to we, which is great. Yes. They're a collective unit, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed that. I'm a little confused by the repeated use of, of the phrase closet champions, though. Yeah, I think they mean they're not hiding, basically. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's, it's a weird statement, yeah. It's a very weird statement. Not quite as weird as Neckbone steaming in the, for three days, but, you know. <laughs> it's definitely up there, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's enjoyable, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After more helicopter footage, Tony builds up the final two matches, pausing to laugh at Heenan still trying to puzzle out the triangle match finish. You and me both, man. Yes. Heenan says he's actually wondering how sweaty Hogan's palms are, being worried about Vader, and what's going through Macho Man's head as he prepares to fight Flair. He points out that Macho's father, Angelo Pafo, is in the crowd today. Tony explains the lifeguard match concept that will be used for Flair and Savage. Basically, it's the same as a lumberjack match. Mm-hmm. in which a bunch of wrestlers are positioned around the ring so that if either competitor ends up out of the ring, the wrestlers muscle them back inside pronto. Honestly, Lifeguard makes more sense as a name than Lumberjack for that match concept. It's like people that are about retrieving other people from places they're not supposed to be, you know? I, mean, I don't know the history of that without you know Googling it, but my guess is that that's a very, very old expression, the whole Lumberjack thing. Like, maybe, like, the Midwestern thing, you know, logging area, uh-huh. the idea would be that these guys had an issue, they would fight it out, and, you know, the people would surround and make sure, that, you know, like, you know, kids in a, in a playground. 
keeping him from. But I don't know if that's true or not. That's my best guess. And actually, WCW, they briefly had a lumberjack wrestler. They did. That was Matt Bourne, yeah, as Big Josh. I wonder if that was his, go- his signature match. Should have been. Yeah. As Tony points out, the main point of the lifeguards is to prevent a heel, in this case Ric Flair, from stalling outside or fleeing. Heenan claims Savage was escaping outside just as much in prior matches, and Tony denies it, so they literally end up in a kindergarten did-not-did-to kind of exchange. They do, yeah, it's great. Tony goes on talking of the match, and Heenan points at himself, mouthing, I'm right, not him, while shielding that from Tony with his other hand. Amazing. It's great. Tony throws to Gene, who is with Ric Flair in a very, very, very pink robe. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 11-time WCW heavyweight champion of the world, a man that has cut quite a swath through this, this great organization as of late, and one man especially that you have attacked verbally, physically, and virtually every other way possible is the man you're going to be facing in a lifeguard match, the macho man, Randy Sett. Me, Gene, what we're talking about tonight is the macho man, woo, versus the nature boy. Now let's go back in time, macho. Elizabeth saw the nature boy, and just like the Baywatch girls, she broke down, had to have it, and she moved on to a bigger, brighter life with the nature boy. Did she go to Space Mountain? You know she did, baby. And last night, National television, I bring out the Space Mountainettes reminiscence of the lifestyle of the nature boy to point out to you, macho, that right here, bash at the beach, you got three things to remember. Number one, I swept Elizabeth off her feet in her finest hour. Number two, I jack-slapped your father because he got in my way. And number three, there is only one limousine-riding, jet-flying, kiss-stealing, wheeling-dealing, son-of-a-gun that's kissed all the girls and made them cry. And that's the nature boy. And today, Bash at the Beach, California, I'm going to drive them wild one more time. Nature boy, you got to get yourself a 900 number. <laughs> Doctor, nobody tells it better than the nature boy macho. Today, Bash at the Beach, woo, I own you. All right, keep in mind, there are going to be 12 to 15 woo! lifeguards around that ring. Ric Flair, I hope you are not taking woo! a victory here in Southern California for granted. One of a kind, the nature boy Ric Flair meeting the macho man Randy Savage. It is part of this. I know it's all in-character stuff, but this feud is always just a tad uncomfortable, since by this point, Savage and Elizabeth's marriage had fallen apart. Mm -hmm. I just hope Savage and Elizabeth were both actually okay with that being used for wrestling storylines. Yeah, I I hope so. As far as the promo itself, interesting tactic from Flair here in character. He's reminding the guy that he's about to face of all the things he's done to him to make sure he's really, really ticked off. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the idea would be that Macho will be too mad to think straight and catch Flair's tricks. I think that's the idea, yeah. Yeah, me, I'd be a little more worried that he'd punch me even harder. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Gene was bizarrely happy to join in and get gossip about Flair and Elizabeth's sex life, by the way. Yeah, I think he's just happy someone actually responded to him. <laughs> that's true, yeah. 
Like, you do hear me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not invisible. <laughs> yes. Or inaudible, I guess. Yeah, still strongly delivered, just a bit of an uncomfortable angle, I think. Yeah, it's funny, because it's a idea a lot of people have. They look back at wrestling, they think, oh, this, you know, kayfabe, or shooting, reality, all sort of thing. They think of that as a real, like, Vince Russo attitude thing, but obviously, as we've covered, you have this part of it, and you have that. I mean, honestly, you had a little tease of that back in WWF when Flair was pretending like they were having an affair. Yeah. So he's trying to instigate that. And of course, you have the even more awkward one involving uh, Benoit and uh, Sullivan. Yes, yes. Otherwise, um, yeah, it's it's an enjoyable Flair promo. Like before, it is it is weird that Gene's like getting into it, but Gene always has this sort of friendship with Flair. So he does. Maybe a heel or not, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, Gene kind of like he's been around certain people for so long that he just always has a buddy buddy relationship with them, regardless of their alignment. Yeah, which I guess you could argue is like good neutral reporting. I guess. Yeah, that's fair. As far as Flair's logic, I'm thinking he's done so much in a short amount of time. Maybe he's like, "There's no way I can go." Look, we're cool, man. Come on. Yeah. So I might as well, might as well just go go full onto it. I guess. Fair enough. Basically, he's the guy wearing a full long sleeved robe on the beach. So maybe thinking things out is not his best uh, <laughs> skill. Yes. Woo. Maybe there's a lot of little air vents. He's got probably it's big enough. He might have a fan in there. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I will say it's interesting, too, bringing up Elizabeth and she's not on the show. That's true. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, I completely forgot about the Flair promo until you're I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, then where's Elizabeth? I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Our sixth match is the Macho Man, Randy Savage, versus the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, in a lifeguard match. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So, uh, there's a lot of issues in play, as sort of talked about the, the promo. Flair has attacked Savage's dad, Angelo Pafflo, on Slamboree after he ducked to the Hall of Fame and tried to save his son. And there's the whole thing with Elizabeth as discussed. It comes to a head when, going back to the first match, they booked that U.S. title tournament for the vacant title. It's a very interesting tournament bracket, actually, if you look at all the people involved, including The Butcher, before he became Zodiac, The Patriot, young Alex Wright, and Steve Austin are in this. Steve Austin loses to Randy Savage, which is a match I didn't know ever happened, like, ever. And he's also out of the company at this point. He was fired in June 1995 mm-hmm. via FedEx while working overseas in Japan. Jeez. So he's part of the overall story, but he's also absent. So anyways, uh, it would come to a head where they are on the same side of the bracket, and it's supposed to be a match against each other. Savage comes out first, and he's stewing, and Flair is apparently scared of coming out, which, I mean, I don't blame him. Yeah. So Savage runs to the back and attacks him into in the backstage area, and ultimately Flair runs away to a car and drives away, which leads to a sort of awkward stopping of the segment where it's like Sting and I think Duggan's there and Savage are there, staying in the middle of the road outside the back of like the arena because Flair drove off and he's sort of walking away. And you're like, maybe you go a little faster. You're kind of you are in the road, guys. <laughs> Fair. Admittedly, if anyone is dressed to be uh, easily seen in traffic, it's Sting and Randy Savage. Correct, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just picturing a guy like driving by, I'm like, what's going on over there? True. Oh, yes. Yeah, so anyways, because their match didn't happen, they were both pulled from the tournament, as opposed to just rescheduling it. Gotcha. Savage described as like a sort of rabid animal, and Flair is afraid, so they go, well, we got we to book a version of the Lumberjack match, but we're at the beach. And if he waves too hot to be wearing flannel at the beach and fake beard, so let's make him lifeguards. 
Okay. Also worth noting that they're relating into the Baywatch aspect, as we'll probably cover in a second. It's, so it's not really a full bait and switch, but there's a certain level where on TV they really build up the Baywatch lifeguards being involved in this. Mm-hmm. I kind of figured that might be the in case. In comparison to what we actually get, as we'll cover. Okay. As Al just mentioned, before the match, a bunch of lifeguards enter. Not the wrestler lifeguards for the match, mind, but lifeguards Tony says are from Baywatch. Quick question, Al, you've mentioned that you might do some uh, investigation. Were you able to determine which of these are actual cast members? Uh, yes, I thankfully was able to ask Allison Pregler from the Baywatching. If you check her out on YouTube, she's really great. She is. Amazing. I did my best to get screenshots since uh, Peacock on every device when it let me take direct screenshots on my computer. According to her, the guy you see coming up front is Chris Fiore, who is a regular extra. She wasn't sure of the rest of them, because again, I couldn't get great shots and a little glare, but she definitely didn't recognize them as being any of the star people. So okay. they had a half dozen random blondes that would be around and, you know, and seen, but then they're not the ones that have dialogue or characters or even B-plots. Fair bet that they are people that are on the show, but as extras likely. Oh yeah, they're definitely, they're definitely on the show, because they, they wouldn't hire extra people for this, yeah. Heenan literally stands on his chair to get a look at them, and Tony absolutely loses it. <laughs> Heenan imagines mouth-to-mouth restitution. Think you meant resuscitation, Heenan. I mean, I don't think he. I don't think it was an accident. I think it's just no. being funny. I don't. I think it's just being funny. The actual wrestler lifeguards for the match are all around the ring already. Before Flair's entrance, we get a shot of some of them. I spotted Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Dirty Dick Slater, Bunkhouse Buck, and Arn Anderson among them in that shot. I'm sure Arn is perfectly capable of staying neutral. We've got nothing to worry about. Entirely trustworthy man, just ask Dustin Rhodes. Yeah, or ask <laughs> Daniel Tosh. Always trust Arn Anderson. That's what yeah, exactly. That's, that's the saying. That is exactly the saying. Um, yeah, what, what's funny, too, is when they're panning around the ringside area, you can see Arn, but they don't nod him the first time. It's only the second time they go by, wait, is that Arn Anderson? Yeah, yeah. Tony gets very upset. I will say I'm a little disappointed that they don't dress the wrestlers like the Baywatch guy lifeguards. Yeah. They're just wearing the red shorts. I'm thinking that's probably a concession for the Baywatch people. They don't want... The, the, there are people who mixed up with the wrestlers. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think you'd confuse it too much, frankly. I'd, right. I, sure. I'd just be... Yeah, yeah. No, uh, for sure. I'm not sure Dirty Dick Slater is ever going to be uh, viewed as you know on the member of the Baywatch cast. Yeah. <laughs> They had special like shirts for this bit. I'm wondering if they, how many of them still have them. Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> Michael Buffer is back to do the ring introductions. Flair is out first, followed by Savage, who gets some encouragement from his shirtless dad. Buffer's intro for Savage mentions him being the national spokesman for Slim Jims, like that's as important to wrestling as him being a two-time former world champion. Also, Slim Jims? And they're hurt. What are these things you're talking about? It might be as important for WCW's finances, though. Yes. Savage tosses some Slim Jims out to the crowd. Meanwhile, Diamond Dallas Page chills out with fellow lifeguard Canyon. Savage beats the crap out of Flair. At one point, Flair hits the corner, and it is really, really loud. Yeah. I think one of the Slim Jims decorations on the ring post comes loose. Savage back body drops him on the rebound. Savage clotheslines Flair out, and the lifeguards send him back in. Flair hits an inverted atomic drop and throws Savage out, but lifeguards Duggan and the Nasties get him safely back in, with the Nasties taking a swing at Harlem Heat. Page can be heard cheering for Flair. Savage flings Flair out, Flair flings Savage out, and Savage suplexes Flair out. 
you would think that the benefit of a lifeguard badge would be that someone would catch Flair on that stunt, but no such luck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so we're obviously dealing with Ray Savage, who, like DDP, you know, uses the binder method, as we'll call yes. it, I guess. So it makes me wonder, either A, the people on the outside were just in the wrong spot, which is highly possible. There's a lot of things going on in this match. Or B, Flair called an audible and says, oh, throw me over the ring to the outside. Could see that, yeah. So they, they, uh, they're on page six, and they're like, wait, there's no one falls out of the ring here. <laughs> Tony claims it was not an intentional toss over the top, and Heenan is in absolute disbelief because that makes no sense. Agreed. I believe they later amend on a different show where it says you can't, you can't be disqualified if you're outside the ring. Yeah, I think they, they state it more that way, yeah. Yeah. Not that that, not that that makes it better. Savage rebound back body drop. Flair eye poke and he works around a sleeper hold, but Savage runs him into the turnbuckle to escape. Flair dumps Savage over the top rope as Randy Anderson quickly finds a reason to be looking at lifeguards instead. Arn tries to get close to Savage but can't get through the crowd as Dick Slater and the Nasties get Savage back in. Flair up top, but Savage dives onto the ropes and Flair falls on top of him. Savage builds to a sleeper, but Flair counters with the shinbreaker as DDP and Canyon just hang out and have fun. Yeah. Flair works the leg and slaps on the figure four, earning a two count, but Savage struggles and turns it over, so Flair breaks. Flair earns two with a stalling vertical suplex, but Savage knocks Flair out of the ring. Flair flees, but lifeguards retrieve him, calling him a, quote, little worm, <laughs> as Paige and Canyon wander over to just have a better look at the action. Savage rebound back body drop, and he hits a top rope double axe handle, but Arn tricks knobs into distracting the ref and sneaks in. Savage decks Arn and dumps Flair to the nasties, who actually do catch him this time. Yes. But while the ref is distracted, Arn sneaks back in and DDTs Savage, and Flair crawls on top. For two. Savage backslide gets two. Flair goes up top, but Flair Karma strikes. Savage hits a flying double axe handle, slams Flair, and lands the top rope elbow drop for the three count and the win. The Nasties, Duggan, and Johnny B. Bad celebrate with Savage, as Bunkhouse Buck is upset outside. The Nasties go to hold Flair for another big elbow, but a lifeguard, I believe to be Canyon's tag team partner Mark Starr, rescues Flair while Canyon looks on. Savage jumps out and gets a hug from a Baywatch gal, and then I think one from his dad, but the camera just about entirely misses that one. Yeah, he does. It does, yeah. Tony throws to the Slim Jim's snap of the match, which oddly is not one but multiple replays. I don't think you get how singular and plural work here, guys. No. Thoughts on this? I thought this was a really fun match. It's a great example of how when you get two really strong workers who know each other, work together for so long at this point, you can definitely see the experience they have working together. What I really like with this match, and I think made doesn't have credit for it, is that so Savage will this thing where when his match is more of a blood feud, he books his match like a blood feud, so <laughs> he changed it into much more of a fight. There's the famous thing where um, in WrestleMania 7, when him and Warrior have their match, people that like to rate matches via star ratings lock the match down because they don't begin with the lockup and like you know normal wrestling stuff. And of course, it's a blood feud. So they're right, yeah. Punch each yeah. other. That makes perfect sense. Absolutely, yeah. So, there's that going for it. The other thing is, this match really feels like they tweaked the formula a bit because they're on TV. Because this match, at least in part, I believe is going to be shown on Baywatch. Oh. So I get the impression they're working much less of a scientific match and much more hard-hitting sort of back and forth. Here's our big spots, here's throws. They're hoping to to entice a non-wrestling fan base 
to watch the product. So in many ways, this is almost the precursor to the cinematic match that people will start doing in the COVID era and even afterwards when they have... Yeah. Okay, I can see that. Also worth noting historically that the pair of Flair and Savage accidentally create the Stone Cold Stunner. <laughs> so there's the earlier spot where Savage dives towards the ropes and Flair pulls off. Flair falls onto Savage. Like chin first, yeah. Yeah, him his chin on Sa- on Savage's head or shoulder. Obviously, you go for the shoulder more with, this, with the Stone Cold Stunner and you're not throwing out top rope, but it's very similar to the way the landing and everything. <laughs> So even though he's not there, I hope Steve Austin's watching going, I have an idea. <laughs> By the way, yeah, I really enjoyed this. I thought they did a good pacing here. They didn't do long arm holds or leg holds. Obviously, they do the figure four spot, but it's fairly succinct. Mm-hmm. And it's the figure four, so... Yeah, yeah. And they get they get in it. They get the moment of, can I get to the ropes or can I turn it? Then they turn it, and then, then that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite good. I'm not, not positive on this match, but I think I'm not quite as positive on, as you on it. I found it fun, but oddly repetitive. Mm. There's a few spots that come back quite a few times, like the rebound back body drop, for instance. Sure. I will say, based off of you saying, oh yeah, this match appears on Baywatch, maybe that's an explanation. They repeated a few spots to make sure that they actually got it with the camera angle they wanted. Sure. That they were plotting it, like you said, part for the Baywatch cameras, so you want to make sure that they get certain spots in. I have to see if that like rebound back body drop shows up in the show. That might answer that question then. Mm-hmm. I also felt the guys ended up out with the lifeguards maybe a tad too many times. I do get that that's kind of the point of this match, but it felt to me like it interrupted the match's flow. Hmm. That said, Flair and Savage are still huge personalities and still made this very fun to watch. Yeah, And some of the lifeguards also did a really good job of being either interested in the match or keeping their personalities and personal feuds alive, like the Nasties and Harlem Heat specifically fighting each other because yeah. of their prior match. And DDP making sure to cheer Flair and thereby earn some camera time for himself. Yeah. Smart man, DDP. There's also a bit early on when Savage is thrown out, and on the heel side with Arn and them are attacking him. You can see the faces, including Duggan, coming over to try to make sure. Yes. Like, hey, you know, get him in the ring, guys. This is what this is for. Right. Yep. Yeah. Overall, this was fun. Just not as, I guess, um, intricate and well-plotted, which some of that comes from, like you said, he makes it a blood feud, so it's actually more of a brawl. But um, a little more repetitive than I thought it would be for a Savage and Flair match. And I think the gimmick's a little bit to blame with it. Mm. It's still a good match. Let me be very clear on that. It's still a good match. I just felt like there were little bits about it that I was noticing and wasn't as satisfied by. Yeah, I mean, to that point, a Flair-Savage match has a very high ceiling and also a very high floor as far as content goes. Yeah. Think of the worst gimmick you can. Unless, Mm -hmm. even then, they'll probably make it enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, the best thing for me in this match was repeatedly catching sight of DDP and Canyon just chilling out, having a grand time watching the match, and completely ignoring lifeguard duty. Yeah. Well, <laughs> then to, to, you, well to your point from earlier, blowing Max Muscle and DDP accidentally hitting him, he hangs around near DDP, but yeah, it's definitely DDP and Canyon hanging out. Yes. He's sort of in proximity. You would think he'd be hanging DDP in character would be hanging out with Max Muscle, planning out his next thing, but Max's like, I'm, I'm going to give you a little space. My personal headcanon, given given that you know how much DDP is known for planning things out, is that he and Canyon are actually already working out like Jersey Triad stuff. Ah, oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Like, hey, man, we can find a third guy to be part of this whole thing. Here's all the matches we can do. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, one other little thing I think is kind of funny. Okay, so while we don't see them, we hear that Sting got his parents' ringside seats. Yes, 
Meanwhile, Savage got his dad a not a great view of the match. Yeah, yeah. He's halfway down the ramp. I mean, admittedly, I'm not sure that you technically have quote-unquote seats that you could actually buy tickets for on this one, like specific areas, so probably just wandered up at, you know, it was just late, so. Keaton has a great line where he's making fun of Angelo Poffo, and if you cut into that one. I did not know that one. So when they first, okay, so when they first see him there, and they highlight him when the Baywatch ladies and the rest of them are coming out, Stefani makes note of him being there, and Heenan says, um, someone along the line of he says, oh, yeah, he's, he's been here all morning. He got his cane stuck in the sand. He's just walking in circles all day. Right, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> I was telling my folks, they were laughing at it. It's like, <laughs> that's, why, that's why you book Heenan. He has just such great lines like that. Yes, absolutely. I, I understand your point in that. For me, I found it just really enjoyable still. Yeah, and I, I still did. I still. Oh, I know, I know, yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty much the blow-off to their feud, with both being busy on the next pay-per-view. I'll cover the Flair stuff more when it involved after the main event match. And of course, Flair will be going to North Korea, or did go to North Korea three months earlier, or whatever it was, for the next show that we've already covered. It is funny, you say, oh, that's the blow-off for the feud, but they bring it back in 96. <laughs> oh, I know. The same yeah. one, yeah. <laughs> this is a blow-off to them having repeated matches, yes. Yes. <laughs> We get more super shaky helicopter footage, made even worse when they zoom in for some reason to show a guy sweeping the ring. Okay. Yeah. Tony now uses capacity crowd and quickly tries to cover by claiming he meant this section of the beach was at capacity. Heenan doesn't buy it. Don't blame him. Tony throws to a video package for Vader's roadkill tour. Remember me? Ha <laughs> yes! You attacked me from the back! Look at it! In black and white, my friend! At the great American Bash, Vader was down on one knee! Calling you out, brother! I begged you to step into the ring! and suffering I've caused on Big Van Vader's Roadkill Tour. What are you doing here, Zodiac slash Rey Mysterio? Yeah. As Vader's Roadkill Tour comes to an end, the carnage, the casualties have piled up. The Roadkill Tour is basically Vader absolutely destroying a ton of jobbers. Yes. I love the random opera music for Vader's promo segments and how jarringly that soundtrack switches in with the rock music. Yes. I also love that it randomly switches to the theme that they'll later use for Zodiac and then Rey Mysterio as well. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a through line. Vader, Rey Mysterio, Zodiac. Yeah, yeah. The soundtrack is just all over the place here. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> pretty, pretty good video package, though. Mm-hmm, absolutely. We cut from that to Mean Gene, who is with Vader, who is wearing his outfit backwards. He is, yes. Vader smashes something, probably a chair, down on the ground near Gene to start us off. Vader, please, Vader. 
Vader, come on and put that, put that, no, no. Please, Vader. What time is it? It's Vader time. What time is it? Somebody must show this jump what time it is. The whole world knows what time it is. The WCW knows what time it is. And in a few moments, brother, Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania is going to find out what time it is. We all know Vader is the most powerful wrestler in the world today. Bar none, he fears no man, and I feel no pain. Hogan, you say this is your stomping ground. You say there are 50,000 Hulkamaniacs out there on the sand waiting for you. But let me tell you something, brother. Vader himself grew up right here in inner city LA, brother, in the sweat, in the blood, in the tears. And when your butt was down there tanning with your brand new car, brother, I was fighting for survival. Hogan, it's over, brother. The charade is over. Oh, yeah, brother. You're going back to Hollywood where your butt belongs because Vader's going to kick it there all the way back to Hollywood. I should point out for the record, you uh, have uh, irritated a lot of promoters around the country. What you did on this roadkill tour, you absolutely devastated everybody in every one of those cities. That shows, Mr. Hogan, there is nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide, brother. I've chased you from the East Coast, and now we're at the West Coast. Brother, there's nowhere else for you to go unless it's time for you to go swimming, Hogan. Vader's Roadkill Tour. The carnage has built up. The bodies, the casualties have built up. Hogan, it's over. The talking's over, brother. In just a few minutes, you're going to find out what Vader time is all about, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, 452 pounds, please. A big Van Vader. Good Vader promo here. Mm-hmm. As he does a great job of taking Hogan's hometown story that they're using tonight, Hogan is built from Venice Beach, which is just about an hour away in L.A., Yeah, and turns it into his own. Vader, though built from Colorado generally, was indeed raised in L.A. It's good use of his personal story to add some legitimacy. Yeah, absolutely. That, plus Vader's aggressive, intimidating style, definitely build anticipation to the match. The legit feel of the promo actually makes Vader feel somewhat sympathetic. Yeah. Tempered, of course, by the fact that he was just beating the crap out of guys nationwide. Right. I feel like that might maybe be a signal of some things to come. Maybe. Um, yeah, it's a scary, creepy Vader promo where he almost injures somebody, so it's typical <laughs> fashion, really. Vader 101, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I do like, it's a good point. I do like that he sort of brings a personal aspect into it. Because mm-hmm. you can easily just go, you know, I'm I'm the big strong guy. I'm Vader. I can beat you up. Where's my title? You could you could do all the hits without adding any subtext or a nuance to it. But yeah, it is, that is a nice little touch there, where he sort of makes it makes it all personalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It is funny too. Uh, he's like, I'm going to send you back to Hollywood where you belong, Hogan. And I'm like, I, I mean, that kind of would maybe be a good thing, right? Like, it means, like, I think that you belong in a place where they make movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it it is funny, again, these things just sort of happen. Pure coincidence. Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Yeah. He says, yeah, Hogan go to Hollywood. And he's talking about him being attacked by Hogan. He says, you know, it's all in black and white. Uh-huh. Which is funny because it's actually, when they actually show the footage, it's in color. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, the black and white well, NWO thing, yeah. You gotta understand Vader. You remember when he got hit in the head by Stan Hansen? I don't think he sees color anymore. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, if your eye gets partially detached and you 
shove back in. That would definitely affect your vision long term. A little bit, yeah. Not that I know from personal experience. I don't, and nor do I ever want to know from personal experience. Fair enough, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. I love Vader, obviously. In case you've never listened to the show before, that's the, the fact. So it's nice to have a Vader promo for sure. Mm-hmm. Gene expresses concern over the upcoming match and asks Tony for his thoughts. Tony agrees that this is a crossroads for Hogan's career and Hogan's most dangerous match. Heenan asks for Chalk to make an outline of Hogan's body after the end of Hulkamania. It is funny how Tony doesn't doesn't get that he's going for it first. Yes. There's definitely some parts where they are just playing around together, like he's sort of feeding him a line, but I don't, that felt legit. Like he's, yeah, it feels like, yeah. where are you going with this for a second? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Tony shows Collision in Korea, and we get the trailer that was used to open the show on the version that we reviewed. Yes. Gene brings in Hogan with Jimmy Hart and Dennis Rodman. Jimmy Hart has a pretty tremendous American flag jacket and outfit in general, actually. He does, yeah. With uh, Hogan's face on the back. I was thinking if you switch that out for Sting and Brad Armstrong on the back, he could be the manager for that tag team we wanted, Al. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Hart, bring him in! WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World, Hulk Hogan, check it out! And NBA superstar Dennis Rodman. Dennis, the last time I saw you was at the airport in Detroit. That's the last time you go ever see me at the airport in Detroit, baby. <laughs> Brother me, Gene, you know what the deal is, big dude. Me and Rod the Bod, we were riding Harley Davidson's brother up and down Pacific Coast Highway, brother, all through the straddle of the night, brother, looking for somebody to bust up, dude. You know, we heard Vader's big mouth, how he's lived around the area, how he lived in the inner city, brother. That's a bunch of... Brother, Vader ain't nowhere around the place, man. Take it easy, big man. Right now, we got Vader set up for the kill. We got the lambs led to slaughter, brother, with hundreds of thousands of Hulkamaniacs out there, dude. We're going to make Woodstock look like a backyard barbecue, brother. We got all the beautiful babes of Baywatch to distract Vader, man. We got the steel cage plowed in the sand, brother. I've got the killer whites out in the Pacific Ocean waiting, brother, when I press his filthy, stinky, war-infested body over my head, brother. As I launch him over the top of the cage, the shark's gonna be there to rip and tear his body limb from limb. But you know something, Mean Gene? Rod the Bod! Rodney, man, is the man that's got the nastiest attitude, brother, in the NBA. And after he trains, after he says his prayers, and after he eats his vitamins, brother, he does whatever he wants to do. And even though we got a steel cage out there, dudes, we know what happens around the WCW, brother. So I strategically paced the big brother right outside the door. And if anybody tries to come down and get in my face or interfere in that cage. Rod the bot. Tell him what's going to go down, brother. Vader! Anyone just know that cage? The head is bass, big man. Bass! You know what I'm saying, brother? Rod the bot will take their face and he will give them a flory dory on the side of that cage. What is that? I don't know. Hamburger meat, brother. And with Jimmy Hart, Rod the Bod, the baddest dude around I know, and Hulk Hogan, and with the largest arms in the world, pumped in all the new veins, 
pumping out of my new veins. New veins? What you gonna do when the power of Hulkamania destroys you? What's he gonna do, brother? What you gonna do, big man? Jimmy Hart, I thank you. I don't mind telling you if anything happens out there to Hogan, I'm certain with the presence of Dennis Rodman at the door, he'll rebound. Tony, Bobby, gentlemen, let's get back to you. Interesting tone to this one. Yeah. Hogan honestly comes off as pretty heelish here. Yeah. He he disrespects Vader's life story, calls him a liar, talks about wanting to beat people up, praises Rodman for doing whatever he wants in the NBA and having a nasty attitude. Oh, and also he's going to literally kill Vader via throwing him into sharks. Yes. He does turn it back around to face mode by the end by noting Rodman's there to stop interference, at least. Sure. I do really want to compliment him for the beginning of the promo, though. There's this awkward pause after Gene and Rodman's first interaction, and Hogan clearly recognizes it and jumps right in to get the promo going. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, this wasn't bad, just weirdly reversed in tone from what I expected. Yeah. Rodman's bit at the end of the promo is strangely uh, emphasized, too. Yes. <laughs> he made a choice to have certain words that he wouldn't think of at all. <laughs> yeah, and I like Hogan's, like, again, kind of jumps right in there to try and clarify, though he does get a bit flustered and use the word flurry-dory, which is like, <laughs> yeah. <He> went, <laughs> what, what does that what, mean? What is a flurry-dory? <laughs> do I need to go in Urban Dictionary and look up flurry-dory now? I don't know. <laughs> For me, my favorite part of the promo is Ogan, I assume, was going to do fake spitting, but did a real spit on the ground? Yes. First off, more things going near... Uh, Poor me, Jane, yes. Or that. Uh, and he's got a little spittle on his chin. He's just going to ignore it, obviously. Rodman sees it and goes over and wipes it off for him, like covering yes. his whole face for a second. And that's, goes, easy. that's why he says, easy, big man. Yeah. Hogan's <laughs> like, okay, well, wasn't expecting that, but sure, we'll go ahead. <laughs> Rodman's just being very helpful, and he's not, he's not appreciating it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there were some very interesting interactions in this promo. Hogan hyperbole is just the best and the worst. Because, like, okay, he's going to press slam Vader. Yes. Which already sounds... Already already fishy. He's going to press slam him over the cage to the ocean, which is apparently full of sharks. Yeah, which is news to the people that are, you know, swimming in it at the moment. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, is it going to do a sudden zoom-in shot on um, Sheriff Brody before that happens to warn everybody? <laughs> it's, it's also, I also love, he says, killer whites, which I think he's combining killer whales and great white sharks. Yeah, he is. He is. <laughs> Oh yeah, there, there's so much bizarre goodness in this promo that you just this, the, uh, the the best types of Hogan promos where you're just like, yeah, agree. What are you saying? <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the more enjoyable version of the Ho- sort of Hogan bollocks promo. Mm-hmm. I think Rodman there is both funny for foreshadowing because obviously we'd see him on later shows, Hogan full heel, mm-hmm. he just ran- randomly hang out backstage at Sturgis. Yes, so it's again more foreshadowing there. But yeah, his his energy mixed with Hogan's and Jimmy Hart's is interesting. Yeah. But you get Jimmy Hart is the most sedate person there, which is which is bizarre. A weird thing to say, yeah. Yeah. I also love uh Gene gets that rebound pun in at the end. Oh yes, yeah. And he heroically holds back a smile at his punning until the very moment the camera cuts. He does. If you're watching, you could you can see him just start to grit at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. One last bit of weirdly quintessential irony here. We go from a promo package for a collision in Korea. Mm-hmm. Famously in North Korea, and who from the next people we see? 
Dennis Rodman. Fair enough. <laughs> History is just weird. Yes. The Matrix is coded very oddly. Could not write this stuff. No. <laughs> so our final match is Big Van Vader versus Hulk Hogan with Jimmy Hart, Dennis Rodman, and a ton of Baywatch lifeguards. Yes. In a cage match for Hogan's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. The cage match this time is under escape rules. You win by going over the cage to the floor or escaping through the cage door to the floor. Pinfalls are also still an option. I personally much prefer the pinfall rules for cage matches where it's just like there's a cage up to stop interference and to be used as a weapon, but not for escaping. As I, I just I, know, I don't really like the I really hate this guy, so I'm going to run away from him to win concept. <laughs> I understand the logic of having the escape rule in to find some cheap way for a heel to get victory. Mm-hmm. And and it helps keep the guy strong, you know, potentially right. if they, yeah. Right. Like you have the, the real extreme version with JBL where you got choke slams already full through the ring canvas and crawled out underneath the thing to escape. <laughs> but to your point, I don't like faces going for the escape. Yeah. I don't mind this one as much the way that it turns out just because they don't really go for it much. No. I've seen matches where it's like everybody's sprinting for the uh, climb immediately. Yeah. But this one is more like, I think Vader goes for it once and Hogan goes for it once. No, agreed, yeah. Yeah, there's a famous uh, Bright and Owen Hart cage match, which yeah. it's a match you either love or you hate. Yeah. Because of that aspect. Exactly, yeah. I, I don't. I, I know people love that match. I don't like that match because it's them constantly, constantly like sprinting for the sides. So Agreed, yeah. So in Vader's mind, his very twisted and I guess colorblind mind, Hogan has been ducking him. While they would face off in a pair of matches across pay-per-views, technically Hogan never pinned Vader during these matches. They would have a really curious one where it's a strap match, in which <laughs> while, while Hogan is going for all four corners, he decides to leg drop Flair, who tried to interfere, and pin him, at which point they ring the bell, and then he still goes and tags the fourth one just to make sure he won, after he apparently already won. <laughs> so, the key thing here is that Vader looks strong. While Hogan wins, he never officially beats Vader. Right. And you find ways with Flair being involved, which will come into play later. Okay. Oh, so you remember that really, well, the match I really loved, where it's Vader and Hansen, that gets 1990, 91? Yeah. Where Vader comes out in his, his headgear and he gets to show off his fun smoke of steam effect? Yes. Uh, well, that never happened, apparently. Because Vader, of all people, was dragged into these stupid, stupid, stupid. Dungeon of Doom angle. <laughs> yes, Vader is summoned to the weird cave set where the Master lives and, and Kevin Sullivan sort of hangs out, wink for random strangers to burst out of walls and free to kill Hulk Hogan for him. Oh my gosh, the shouting that must have ensued in that segment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Between okay. the Master and Vader. Okay, so if you can find it, it's worth watching because Vader appears in his full headdress and headgear He's wearing it the entire time in the promo. So he's summoned there. Kevin Sullivan's there and the Master are there. They are all shouting at the top of their lungs. With Vader, I think, compensating with the fact that he's wearing the helmet. So he's shouting louder to try to get through the helmet space. Oh my gosh. Vader is summoned there by the Master and told to go on his Path of Destruction tour. And on top of that, when he would appear with his headgear, he proclaimed that he is, quote, no longer Vader, now always Big Ben Vader, now and forever. Okay. Oh, and um, if you're wondering where Vader was before he was summoned to the 
where the hell does Dungeon and Doom live? He was, quote, going to another dimension. <laughs> I swear, Vader says he was going to another dimension. Not I, I'm not making that up. So, so just to be clear, why does that mean that the Stan Hansen match never happened? Because the headgear is part of him being Big Van Vader. Oh, so he's claiming, like, I received this from the dungeon? Yes. Gotcha. Because um, previous matches building up to this, he didn't have the headgear for one or another. Maybe. Okay. Bear with me here. Okay. Maybe what that actually means is that this is not the Vader that we've been watching up till this point. This is a Vader that was in another dimension and was summoned here. It's an alternate universe Vader. Oh. That they have summoned and gifted this universe's Vader's helmet. Okay. So that so he he did legitimately receive the helmet from them and become Big Van Vader because of them, because he's a different Vader than the Vader we're used to. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Alternate theory, we're going under tenant rules, where even though you see someone earlier, that's actually them later. That's that's looping possibly. back in time to be there. So that match with him and Sanderson happens technically for Vader happens after this. It's in his future. Gotcha. Exactly, yes. <laughs> See, this is this is this is why I love the Dungeon of Doom angle, even though it's so dumb. It's like oh, you yeah. get when, what other wrestling angles do you get to discuss, you know? <laughs> weird time travel and alternate universe things and have yes. not entirely sound like a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are all things that happened. Buffer is back for the entrances. It's funny to hear him say main event of the afternoon instead of main event of the evening. Yeah, that's true. Vader comes out in his tremendous, amazing helmet. His outfit is still backwards. Well, yeah. A lady in the crowd flexes her own quite impressive muscles. Yeah, she reminded me a lot of Raquel um, Gonzalez, who's in WWE right now. Obviously, it couldn't be her, because this is almost 30 years ago, but it looks like her. <laughs> Unless Tenet thing is happening oh, again. Yeah. Yep. See? Okay. There you go again. Everything's next together. <laughs> We've lost it, man. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I only feel like I should, I should apologize to Christopher Nolan for bringing his movie into this. Vader hands the helmet over to ref Randy Anderson before getting in because, yeah, he's not getting through the door with that thing on. No. Hogan's music hits, and a ton of Baywatch lifeguards come out. I was curious about the people coming out for this one, because you see different people than last time. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually recognize people in front, having watched Baywatching since the beginning through Allison on YouTube. Again, definitely check her out. She's really Yes. Cool. Amazing. So, Hogan gets actual stars for his. Gotcha. I guess that he's more important for this angle on the TV show than Savage is. Yeah, he gets David Chokichi and Gina Lee Nolan, who are both actual main characters who, at very least, get B-plots. Mm -hmm. But then the rest of the Baywatch extras fall behind. Okay. Also following behind are Jimmy Hart, Dennis Rodman, and finally Hulk Hogan himself. One of the other guys escorting Hogan to the ring has a Slim Jim's hat because money. Yes. Hogan gives the cage a shake as Buffer proclaims him King of Hulk Mania. He does. So close. Yeah. Hogan climbs in over the top of the cage and tears his shirt off, and we start right away. Hogan wraps his shirt around Vader's neck and repeatedly rams him into the cage, but can't knock Vader off his feet. Hogan rakes the eyes to win a slugfest, but Vader blocks a cage ram and runs Hogan into it, then beats the crap out of him and runs him into the helmet, which is propped on a corner turnbuckle. For some reason, WCW decides to show that from outside, behind Rodman, so the audience can barely see. Yeah. 
Hogan blocks a second ram and sends Vader into it instead, and Vader falls for the first time in the match, proving not Hulkamania, but Helmet Mania is the most powerful force in the universe. To his credit, Vader, who's a big guy, we've never seen mm-hmm. before, and he's built like a defensive lineman in football, those three, four pound guys. He bumped like he was shot of a cannon. Yes. Yes. It's like a Rey Mysterio being chucked across the ring by someone. Mm-hmm. He is he is selling for his helmet. Yes. Well, it's magical, obviously. Hogan puts on Vader's helmet. It looks gigantic on him. This is the funniest thing Hulk Hogan has ever done. It's yeah. great. <laughs> I like, do like that he does the sort of stilted Vader walk with his arms. Yes. Like that as well. He lands a couple very gentle headbutts to Vader, as he probably can barely see and doesn't know how far he is from him at all. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they could have cooperated a little better on that. Vader could have sort of helped him, like, Vader could have pulled him in or something. Yeah, it it doesn't look great, honestly. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny, yeah, it's a funny idea, but they don't quite nail the execution yeah. of him actually doing the move. Vader again sells like he's been shot with a cannon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, not the best ex- execution, but this had me in stitches. I love that. Oh, it, yeah, it's, it's it's funny. As the ref disposes of the helmet, Vader splashes Hogan in the corner, hits a couple second row Vader bombs for two, then props Hogan on his shoulder and rams him into the cage. Vader release suplex, and he goes for the door, yelling at the camera guy to move. I would move. Yes. Hogan recovers and rams Vader into the cage repeatedly, but he can't slam Vader. Vader clubs him down and tries a top rope elbow drop, and Hogan dodges because Hogan would like to remain alive. Yeah. Hogan tries the slam again, but Vader falls on top for two. A third attempt works, but Hogan hurts his back, so Vader hits him so hard that Heenan jokes that he knocked Hogan's mustache off. <laughs> again, sign of things to come, Hogan will be shaved in an angle later this year. Yeah, about three months from now. Yep. Vader's second rope splash gets two, but Hogan hulks up. Vader tries to run him into the cage, but Hogan blocks and lands strikes, multiple cage rams, and a big boot, but Vader won't fall. Hogan kicks him in the gut. It looked like he was going for another big boot and misjudged the distance. Very possible. And Vader finally falls. Suddenly, Zodiac and Taskmaster run down the ramp, but Rodman drives them off with a chair, held upside down the wrong way. Glad he didn't actually take a swing. Uh, Yeah. Hogan hits not one, but two leg drops, thinks about pinning Vader, and decides to climb out instead. Vader gets up and fights him atop the ropes, but Hogan knocks him back to the mat and climbs out into the floor for the win. Hogan celebrates with Rodman and Hart and makes his exit, as Vader lies on the mat inside. Tony starts to wrap up the show, and we even cut to the commentary team where Tony signs off and Heenan takes off his headset. But as Tony is telling Heenan good broadcast, we suddenly cut back to the ring, where Flair charges into the ring and gets in the revived Vader's face, yelling that Vader was supposed to beat Hogan. Flair continues losing his mind, but Vader chokes him. Arn runs in and hits Vader to save Flair, then immediately regrets all his life choices and flees from the angry charging Vader as fast as he can. Yes. Flair climbs up and over the cage faster than anyone who has ever been in a cage match ever. And he would have won this match, wouldn't he? (laughs) Yes, easily. He drops all the way to the floor in his rush to escape, and he and Arn flee. Vader yells at the camera that Flair stuck his nose in his business and challenges Flair and Arn at once to a fight. He calls Flair a big-nosed punk, and says he stuck his nose in Vader's business for the last time. Thoughts on this one? I thought this was a fun match, even with, and perhaps maybe to a certain extent because of, the usual Hogan bollocks mm-hmm. involved. I enjoyed the power dynamic they had. I thought they make Vader look 
for the most part, the match looked really strong. Yes. Um, you know, he, he won't go down. Hogan's got to you know, hit him a little harder, and he's got to do certain things to get him down. I appreciate little things like the helmet come into play, you know, with how they how they bump for it, how the helmet is apparently made of, like, some sort of super strong lead-like material. Depleted uranium, I think we normally use. Yes, that, yeah. there you go, yeah. And then, as soon as it's funny, once they're done with it, they sort of calmly take that, and quietly take the helmet out of the, out of the ring and never mention it again. <laughs> yes, yeah. Randy Anderson, just like, oh, I'm moving this over here. I guess you guys are done, right? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> to Hogan's credit, okay, he does sell well for Vader. I do like that, you know, even when he's starting to do his usual Hogan comeback, he does manage to finally buy a slam Vader on the third attempt, but he sells his back afterwards, so Vader's actually up before he is. Yes. It's a nice touch. There's little parts I can critique. Um, one thing I've noticed watching the Vader stuff is that even though he shouldn't, he would do his landing and move differently and landings differently if he knew he was going to miss. True, yeah. Could to be fair, a guy his size, I can't imagine laying on your side is that much fun. Prob- probably hurts, yeah. But it, it makes that move he's doing it's funny. I'm glad you called it elbow drop, because I honestly was not sure what he was trying to do there. Because he jumps and just sort of flails a bit when he realizes he's not going to hit and, and lands on his back. Which, again, still wouldn't be fun, but definitely better than landing on your knees. Yes. But yeah, so for the most part, I really enjoyed it. I like that Vader got to do his stuff. He got to look strong. But then the ending, I'm, I don't know, I'm torn on the ending. So pinning is an option. Hogan eventually does finally get Vader down and do a leg drop. Makes Vader look strong in the sense that he doesn't immediately go for a pin, thinking, oh, and Diaz is not going to work. So he does it again. But then he sort of plays to the crowd for a while, mm-hmm. asking if he should pin. Which means Vader's got to just sit there and go, ah, can't do anything. Now, to be fair, it is the Hogan leg drop. Yeah, no, that's the thing. That's why I'm mixed on this. I, I'm really not sure how I feel about this. Yet. Yeah. Even just rewatching this today to keep it fresh, I'm still, I go back and forth on this. He sort of plays around with the idea, like, oh, I could beat Vader whenever I want to after doing this a little bit. Yeah. That said, then once he goes to kind of the cage, Vader's back up. Yes, and fighting him toe-to-toe, yeah. Yeah, so Vader does recover from two Hogan leg drops, which makes him look good. I'm not sure on this one. I think on balance for me, it comes out making Vader look quite strong. He takes two Hogan leg drops, which normally one is enough to put you out for good in a match. He still gets to keep going, fights evenly with him, and only loses because he falls from the ropes. Right, like I said, like I said yeah. Even as I'm thinking about it, I might go back and forth on that. Because, yeah, just this brief bit where he seems like he's playing with him just kind of, kind of sticks in my craw a bit, but I get your point. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like, if, for instance, instead of Vader doing the, I guess, elbow drop and splatting on the ground, if they did if maybe some version of, like, the Flare Karma spot or grab him out of the corner with the power slam. So if he done something like that and pinned him, and Vader, like, kicks out strongly, so you show he can, he can escape Hogan's offense, I think that would help me. Okay. Again, I do like that they still end with Vader not being pinned, leaving things open for something that, spoiler alert, will never happen. But yeah, I will still enjoy the match as a whole. Yeah, for me, this was pretty much your average Hogan versus Large Man template match, just with some of Vader's signature spots put in. But they do add little extra bits like the helmet rams and the helmet headbutt and using the cage a lot mm-hmm. to elevate it a bit more. The match had some good pivot points and some clear buildups too, most notably Hogan's repeated attempts to slam Vader. Yeah. I also really appreciated that they changed the Hulk up pattern to acknowledge the cage, which as a side effect makes Vader look smarter than basically anyone else who's ever taken a Hulk up. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Because he at least tries to do something different and more impactful. It's also worth noting that Hogan does block the cage rams 
rather than no selling them. Mm-hmm. So there's an implication that that would have broken him out of that ending surge. Mm. Okay. It was something he felt the need to defend against, even in the Hulk up. He gets pretty close on them too. It doesn't like make it sort of easily block, and like he oh, no, he no. gets an inch of these time. Yeah. So even during the Hulk up, he's he's I think actually trying to make Vader look strong, which is kind of nice. He thankfully avoids a nice, uh, dangerous Floridori. Yes. <laughs> Again, whatever the that is. <laughs> That said, there's quite a lot of heelishness from Hulk in this. Yeah. Which feels backwards, much like the promos. Well, his first move is grabbing a shirt and trying to choke a guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, admittedly, it's a cage match. There's, it's no DQ. You can be a little bit... But it's, it feels weird that the face is the one that goes for that first. Yeah. Like, I don't mind the helmet stuff because Vader does it first. But the t-shirt stuff does feel a little bit weird. Yeah. As mentioned before, I don't really like escape endings because I don't like escape rules. But it does protect Vader. Not only has he not been pinned, he survived two of Hogan's finishers in a row. There's not a lot of guys that get to do that. Yeah. If memory serves correctly, the first Hogan-Vader match as a DQ finish, mm-hmm. and then, as I talked about before, the second one is that strap match, which has the flare interference and all that. Yeah. It's actually a little odd, given that this keeps Vader pretty strong, that we're clearly building not to another Hogan match at this point, but to Vader versus Flair. Mm-hmm. Not that I'd want him crushed before facing Flair, but it just doesn't feel like a definitive end to the Hogan versus Vader feud. Mm. Like you pointed out with Sting and Meng earlier, this feels like something you do in a mid-match, and then you still have the definitive pinfall ending from the leg drop at some point in the future. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed having a Vader match with no Moonsault. No Moonsault, yeah. And no Powerbomb. I wonder if he was worried about the cage for the Moonsault. Like, it'd be too close, and he might catch it with his feet. Yeah. We haven't reached the point in pro wrestling where everyone goes, ooh, a cage, I'll go on the top and then jump off. <laughs> I wouldn't want to see Fader do it. No, oh my no. gosh. The cage would not survive. Right, right. One little thing I noticed on the rewatch, I didn't know the first time. And, you know, much like I generally dislike Hogan, he's always one of those guys that would find a way to work a little bit smarter than other people sometimes. Mm-hmm. So if you watch the way he escapes the cage... He drops down to the steps and then climbs to the floor. That's smart. Yeah, his, his actual drop is probably a couple inches because of how tall he is. And it steps down. <laughs> I did not notice that. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, again, the overall booking scenes protect Vader for future stuff that, I think, again, no won't happen. But they were planning on happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As he threatens, Vader would face Arn Anderson and Ric Flair in a handicap match at the next Class of the Champions. The finish would involve um, miscommunication between the pair of them, that being Arn and Flair, which would lead to their very confusing but also quite good feud that would follow, leading at Fall Brawl, they rest each other. Right. As for Fall Brawl, it's War Games time yet again. We would get the team of Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Sting, and Vader. Oh, 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 sorry, actually, it's Lex Luger, because Vader gets in a backstage fight with Paul Orndorff and is fired. <laughs> yes. The week before Nitro begins. Yeah. Timing, man. Yeah. There is a promo package. Oh, yes. <laughs> where it is. Yeah. Well, the front p- p- face it. It's the face team of Vader, you know, all preparing for war games. They have their military camo face paint and all stuff on. Then the, the fight happens. You know, Lex Luger makes his famous Nitro debut. And they begin one of Bob's favorite long-term storytelling bits. Yes. Which is, can you, can you trust Lex Luger? Because I, Sting, do. <laughs> yes. So yeah, Luger is put into Vader's position because of what happens. I, I genuinely wonder, if Vader had stuck around, mm. 
Do you think they would have tried to do a similar thing with Sting and Vader? Like that they do with Sting and Luger? Vader is the uh, guy yeah. that nobody trusts oh. other than Sting? Or is that purely because they know that Sting and Luger are actually buddies? Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. I could see that. You could do the um, you should respect Born from combat thing. Yeah, exactly. That said, of course, Lex Luger was still going to come in because yeah, they want they wanted the surprise for Nitro and they could steal him because of Primitive McMahon's uh, apathy towards Lex Luger and his contract. I feel like that was probably always a Sting and Luger plan, but it just is funny to me picturing uh, just slotting Vader into all of Luger's moments. The sleeping outside the arena bit when he misses the title match or the uh, agreeing to a Chicago street fight and then asking annoyed Sting what a Chicago street fight is. Yes. <laughs> you know? Picture picture all of those as a shouty Vader, and it's like, it's almost even better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, you get the team of Hogan, Savage, Luger, and then Placement, and Sting, against the Dungeon of Doom, which is now, would be full effect by the time the show happens in September. Yes. The Dungeon of Doom team, by the way, at this point, is Kamala, getting another nice payday for that guy. Good for you. The Zodiac, who we saw briefly here. Yes, no. Ming, who at that point is brought into the story, they, I think they, they give him a weird mask, like they gave yes. uh, Kamala. And I have to find an excuse to mention this, because it happened on the very next WWE Saturday night. The newest member of Dungeons of Doom, which they actually reference on this, the shark. <laughs> oh no, Hogan's shark's buddies betrayed him, that he was going to yeah, use against exactly. Vader. Exactly, betrayed by his own sharks. That is John Tenta coming over from the WWF who famously was so committed to the gimmick, he went through a long process of turning his tiger tattoo into a tiger shark tattoo. Oh my gosh. Only to not be the shark by the end of 1995. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. But he, so he debuts in the next WWE Saturday night. And again, that same silly cave set everyone has to hang around in. He is proclaimed as having come from, quote, 200,000 leagues from under the ocean. Which is, I mean... Okay, th- let's <laughs> breaking that down for a second. Okay, yes. Number one, 200,000 leagues would be quite a distance. But number two, the line is specifically 200,000 leagues from under the ocean. Yes. Which makes it sound like you're saying that he's from a place that is 200,000 leagues from the bottom of the ocean. Yes. I.e., way up in the sky. Yeah, he doesn't have a satellite, Bob. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe he's part of the Justice League back when they had a satellite. Um, would make sense. He's. You know, we already did say they're kind of the super friends thing. Man, look at that. Through a line through the whole show. <laughs> we are so good at this. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the end of that. Anyways. Nice. As Vader makes his exit, Heenan is confused by what he's just seen. Heenan blames Flair's insanity in going up in Vader's face on how crazy Hogan makes him. Tony covers some replays from the match, which puts a bit of a lie to the whole we thought we were off the air thing earlier, since why would they not be planning on showing replays before going off the air? Whoopsie. Tony asks if it's really time to go off the air this time, and signs off for real. And Slim Jim's Bash of the Beach 1995 is done. So, final thoughts on the show? Uh, it's not the strongest show. Match-wise, I mean, I can enjoy parts like of the Sting match, and, you know, in the, in, you know, in their own little bubble, I can enjoy, you know, DDP, Wigover, Sullivan. As we discussed pretty thoroughly, the tag team match makes no sense. So for me, it's mostly a two-match show with the main event matches as far as the high peak that said it has a really unique feel as i'm sure you're going to say uh because of the outdoor beach setting it's always interesting seeing a show that's just different looking Mm -hmm. it's not always better you can book a show in a really unique environment but if you don't book a good show it 
doesn't matter that much. But yeah, this show stands out historically for both the product placement for Baywatch and for Sim Jims, but also the sea of humanity they have out there. It's just a mixed bag quality-wise, but the general crowd seems to really enjoy everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt this was a notable downgrade from the prior years. It's just kind of odd, though. Objectively, it's actually a pretty bad show with several poor matches and one that was just downright confusing. The fact that I'm genuinely considering a match involving Dave Sullivan in Match of the Night contention says a lot. Yeah. It didn't help that the show featured several of WCW's more questionable decisions from the period, from stereotypes to poor imitations to ridiculous cartoony gimmicks to involving people's actual divorce and storylines. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not a difficult watch. No. Only one match on the show even reaches 15 minutes, so most of this, good or bad, moves at a brisk pace. And if what's going on is bad, it generally won't be on for very long. True. To be fair to WCW as well, this show is them trying new things and hoping to build up new stars. Yeah. Most of it doesn't really work. Yeah. But I appreciate the effort. Mm -hmm. They've got the right idea. Let's build up new guys and try out some interesting match types. They just don't pick the right new guys or the right match types sometimes. Mm -hmm. The promos are part of what really helps the show. We get a lot of them tonight. And most are solid to good. Not all, but most. There's a lot of plot and character building tonight, and I do appreciate that, even if it did mean a lot of segments to the show. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the better version of what they'll try to do in 1999 and 2000. There's lots of promos, but they actually get time here rather than having time for a single sentence. Right, yes. The video packages were weird, but fun as well. Yeah. I got, see, I got the impression that this show is really trying to build off what they got last year. Mm-hmm. And because they have this announced Baywatch connection, you know, you get a lot of press about it, you know, from outside sources. Yeah, I'm sure like Entertainment Tonight and other places are like, oh, you know, WCW and Baywatch, and you're going to do this thing, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So I think their 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 mindset is we're getting people that may not watch wrestling, so let's get everyone a promo. So we go, hey, here's this character. So if not Flair command, they go, who's this Flair guy? What's he doing? And then if, you know, someone's got to explain it to him. Yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense that they probably added some promos to the show so that you. Had people able to like get in with the angles, yeah. Yeah. Tony and Heenan were a little bit more hit and miss than usual tonight, leaning into the adversarial gimmick maybe a bit too much on this show. They always bicker on shows, and normally I love that, but this time it felt like the gimmick was getting in the way of their storytelling at times, and some of it fell flat besides. There were still fun moments with quick back-and-forth jabs, particularly that like kindergarten argument bit was really funny. Yeah. Yeah, Heenan's in really good lines throughout the show. But it just felt a little bit weaker than usual. Not much. Just a bit. It probably wasn't great for the company's bottom line, but I love that this took place on an actual beach. Mm-hmm. It gave it such a unique atmosphere, as you knew I would say. <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> and for the first time, this series really lived up to its name. Yes. The ocean, the hotels, the beachgoers were a neat backdrop. And WCW did a good job further emphasizing the theme with their graphics choices. I wouldn't want every single show to be on the beach, but it was a fun idea for this year, and I would like to see them try it one more time. I don't think they do. The closest you get are their spring breakout. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. Or they had the ring around a little pool, yeah. Overall, this was a subpar show that nevertheless is slightly elevated by a creative gimmick, fun atmosphere, and a quick pace. Despite not really liking it much in the end, I do still recommend watching it all the same. There's not much that WCW does that's similar to this show, save for maybe the Hog Slash Road Wild series, so it's worth a look just for that alone. 
Yeah, I see so. This takes me back to when we were going through Starcade. There's a big difference in quality of show between 1993 Starcade, which was, you know, I had to say that had moments that were bad too. 94, because at that point, you know, it's six months in, almost six months in Hogan being in the company. All his buddies are in here. Mm-hmm. So you have, yeah, you have all these people that are involved, and it generally makes the show worse and more silly because, you know, all the stuff's happening. So that's kind of the same thing you get with this show and the previous show. That said, again, the, the silly aspect of it and the unique location elevates it a little bit from being a half-hearted repeat or retread like we ran into when he did four Hog Wild shows, Road Wild shows in a row. Right, yeah. This one being unique helps it, but if they put another show at the beach, then you're going to really start looking at the show quality, so it better be better. Yes, agreed. <laughs> Match of the night and MVP. So, Al, what's your match of the night? So, as I said, for me, this is mostly a two-match show. So, it's between the two main event matches, Flair and Savage versus Vader and Hogan. Mm-hmm. As much as I love Vader, I still enjoyed the Flair-Savage match slightly more. I thought it was an enjoyable fight that will hopefully play well on television and did play well on television for them through Baywatch. Okay. Uh, for me, this was a three-match show. Fair enough. Flair versus Savage. Hogan versus Vader, and DDP versus Sullivan. <laughs> Flair versus Savage is fun, but it, for me, was quite start and stop and repetitive. Hogan versus Vader features nice hard hits in the helmet spot, but I don't like Hogan's heelishness or the escape rules. DDP versus Sullivan is well plotted and surprisingly good, but really short. That's the thing, yeah. I, yeah. I couldn't put it in there because it's only four minutes long. It is closer than it has any right to be, but I'm going with Hogan versus Vader. Okay. Vader's power, the slam subplot, and the helmet spot are pluses, and they don't much use the escape rules, so I can set them aside and give it the win. Fair enough. MVP? And I went through this a lot. Um, that's the one I was torn on. It's hardest, always hardest to decide. As I joked at the beginning, I, I was tempted to give it <laughs> to the, un, the unnamed announcer guy who talked of Ming and, I guess, spoke as Ming, but no, I'm not going to do that. Father Flair and Savage both did a really good job in both their promos and matches. The delivery was quite well. They really sold their characters and their anger. Same with Hogan and Vader. Obviously, Hogan does a much more silly enjoyment. Briefly give shout-out to DDP for, again, making a way better match than I thought of with Dave Sullivan, even as really short. Sting's energy and what he was willing to give Ming in his match was quite good, even if I didn't enjoy the match as a whole. And again, Port Warndorf... Really, having the albatross around his neck in the form of Renegade and the way the match is built, I got him credit for that. He did what he could. And even, you know, most of the people in the triangle match, which, again, as bad as it was due to the nonsense we've covered, pretty ad nauseum now. I don't think they necessarily did bad, but they they didn't stand out enough for me, especially because only one-third of that group got a promo. So for me, it's tight contention between some combination of their matches and their promos between Savage and Vader. I think very slight edge goes to Savage. I enjoyed his match a little better. I enjoyed his insane promo. And going back to John's original logic, literally without him, I'm not sure they could afford to do this show. <laughs> Fair enough. Without without Slim Jim, so yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. It's, it's a real razor thin, though. You mentioned mine? Okay. Of course, you mentioned just about everyone on the show, so maybe that doesn't narrow it down that much, but... It does not, no. I am giving this to Diamond Dallas Page. Okay. 
He genuinely did a great job with his match with Dave Sullivan, crafting a well-plotted match that was performed smoothly. Mm -hmm. I came into that match somewhat dreading it, and I left pleasantly surprised. And that is a major achievement. And that wraps up our review of Bash at the Beach 1995. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Bash at the Beach. What one, you ask? The Baywatch one, I say. What? Yes, as Tony noted, Baywatch cameras were filming at Bash at the Beach 1995, which features as part of the plot of Season 6, Episode 15 of Baywatch, titled, appropriately enough, Bash at the Beach, which didn't actually air until half a year later in February 1996. Yes. Feels a bit far away to be effective cross-promotion. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off without being interrupted by Angry Ric Flair. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Tonight we're looking at... Uh, man, I hope I didn't say that last episode. I don't, I, 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 would, I don't think you did. So yes, tonight we are taking a look at Beach Blast 1994, Hulk's WCW debut. <laughs>